By the way, in case you haven't heard, my brand new book, Feel Good Productivity, is now out. It is available everywhere books are sold, and it's actually hit the New York Times and also the Sunday Times bestseller list. So thank you to everyone who's already got a copy of the book. If you've read the book already, I would love a review on Amazon. And if you haven't yet checked it out, you may like to check it out. It's available in physical format and also ebook and also audiobook everywhere books are sold. If your gut is not quite working optimally, even though you might not have any specific symptoms, it can still have an impact on your mental health and your mental performance. When people are busy and they're working too hard and they're doing a side hustle and everything else is high pressure, people tend to make their diet quite small, so they might end up eating the same types of foods on repeat. And inevitably, those ways of eating have an impact on your gut health, whether you feel it in your gut or not. This episode is an interview with one of the UK's leading experts on gut health. Her name is Sophie Medlin and she is a dietitian. She's also the chair of the British Dietitian Association for London and she works as a lecturer at King's College London and is actually also on TV these days as an expert for Channel's 4 show which is all about the science of the gut. Anyway I learned so much in this episode and you're going to learn so much as well about the gut and about healthy nutrition and about what are all the myths around things like seed oils and should you eat carbs and is fried food bad for you and what are the things that we can do to help improve our gut health and how the gut brain axis works and how like our gut health contributes to all of the other aspects of our life. Inevitably if it's not happy it's going to be screaming at your brain all the time and that is noisy and difficult for your brain to cope with and that can lead to things like brain fog and struggling with focus and concentration for example. Similarly if your gut isn't happy but you don't really know from other symptoms but you're getting loads of bugs, infections, viruses all the time you notice you're really susceptible that's a good time to start looking at your gut health and I think I guess for this audience what's really important to recognise is this connection between your gut and your brain and how they are constantly communicating with each other for better or worse. Now, before we get into this episode, I've got a very quick announcement, which is that I'm launching a Telegram community for the podcast. Now, I'm going to be honest. Initially, the reason for starting this podcast was quite a selfish one in that I wanted to learn from cool and interesting people and apply their insights to my own life. And it's just generally easier to hang out with people if you invite them onto your podcast rather than if you just want to have a chat with them. But over the last 18 months of running this podcast, it's grown ridiculously fast. And actually, we've had so many messages and YouTube comments and emails and Instagram DMs and stuff from people talking about how much value that you guys have gotten from the episodes as well. And so, so we're planning to change direction a little bit in that instead of me just treating these conversations as a personal therapy session with the guests, which we might still do a little bit of, I actually want to learn more about you guys who are listening to the podcast or watching the podcast and understand what are the things that you would like to see from the podcast. And I really want to better understand what challenges you're going through, what struggles you're going through, so that we can then kind of tailor the guests and tailor the questions to that. So that's why we are starting up this completely free Telegram community. If you hit the link in the show notes or in the video description, wherever you're watching or listening to this, you'll be able to sign up completely for free. It's always going to be free you will never have to pay a penny. The group is called The Deep Divers, which I think is kind of funny. And it's basically a group where I'll be posting some of the behind the scenes stuff from the podcast. But also as we get new guests coming on, I'll be asking in that group if you guys have any specific questions for the guest so that can help inform the direction of the interview. I'm also going to be posting a few polls and questionnaires and surveys in that group. So if you're interested in kind of sharing more about you and about your life, then you can do it through that group. And then again, that'll just help us figure out how do we best make this podcast as value add for you guys as possible. And we're also going to be using the Telegram group to give away some free freebies. Like for example, often authors on the podcast will come and they'll gift us like 50 of their books, for example. I don't need 50 copies of, <laughs> of an author's book, but it's the sort of thing that we can absolutely send to people around the world completely for free. Anyway, if that sounds good and you'd like to join the community, then do hit the link in the podcast show notes or in the video description, wherever you're seeing this or listening to this. And now let's get on with the episode. Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank this you for having me. You're an expert on gut health. I am. Yeah, I'm the poo expert. The poo expert. Yeah. <laughs> and you've been on TV talking about poo and... I would love to talk about poo and everything about the gut. But I guess 
as a starting point, how did how did we get here? How did you come to become the gut expert? What's kind of a blitz of your life story? Yeah, great question. So I was a weird 15-year-old child that knew I wanted to be a dietitian. So I was very lucky to kind of have this direction from a very young age. I was studying catering at GCSE and I had a catering teacher who was a nutritionist and we did some stuff on like celiac disease and adapting diets a little bit and I thought yeah I think that's something I might like to do so I did a little bit of reading and thought well I could be a nutritionist which is a bit quicker to train to do but that won't necessarily open up all the doors to me and then I read about being a dietitian knowing that I could then go and work in the NHS and do all sorts of other things within the world of nutrition I thought well I might as well keep all the doors open and at this point, I was predicted D's and E's and U's in my GCSE. So I thought, I better do some work and make sure I get the grades I need to get into university. But it was a really, really good motivator. Um, and I managed to turn that all around and get got the good enough grades to get in. And uh, yeah, studied nutrition and dietetics. And the story starts from there. Most dietitians start working in the NHS. And that's what I did. So I was in the NHS for about eight years. I did some interesting stuff in elderly medicine where you get really good at kind of understanding about nutrition support, which is basically supporting undernutrition, so malnutrition, doing lots of tube feeding, making difficult decisions about whether people should be tube fed or whether that's the best thing for them or not, given it might be the end of their life, that sort of thing. Um, I then did head and neck cancer, where you look after people who have all kinds of horrific tumors in their mouth and their throat and all sorts of different places where obviously eating is massively compromised. And at that same time, I was doing a split role with intestinal failure. And then I went on to do a full-time intestinal failure role um, where I was, you know, just super inspired by amazing colorectal surgeons doing incredible things, amazing specialist nurses, stoma nurses, people who were just turning people's lives around and people who were in their most sort of vulnerable moments of their life. Um, and nutrition has a massive impact on what comes out your bottom, right? What you put in the top end has an impact on what comes out the bottom. And when you've had any kind of bowel surgery or you are suffering in terms of your digestion, what you put in has a huge impact, not only on your nutritional status, but also on your on your quality of life. So your experience of eating. So if you eat the wrong things in inverted commas, you're going to be potentially incontinent and having all sorts of terrible problems that really affect your quality of life and make your life very small. And when I was able to see what a massive difference I could make in that environment to people's quality of life, to their experience of living, to their experience of eating, their relationship with food, I was like, this is what I want to do forever. <laughs> so I stu I've stuck with that very much in terms of my clinical expertise. I uh, was then a lecturer and researcher for five years, most recently at King's College in London. And at that time, I was struggling a bit with kind of, I love academia, I love teaching, I love working with students, it makes me really happy. I love that kind of mentoring aspect of it. But I was struggling with some of the kind of things that other people found easy, the admin side of things, timetabling, that kind of thing. Things that might seem like they don't really matter because you should have admin support, but you just don't in those kinds of environments. And it's things that, you know, upset the students because they don't necessarily know where they're supposed to be. And so I was talking to my mentor and she was saying, look, you know, if you were a student, we'd say to you, why don't you get tested for like dyslexia and other conditions like that? And I thought, well, that's probably a good idea. So I got tested and I found out that I've got dyslexia, dyspraxia and ADHD. So full hat trick. <laughs> and at this point in my life, I was trying to make a decision as to whether I wanted to pursue a bit more private practice and see more patients, which I'd continue to do through my academic practice um, and maybe do some TV work, which I'd started to do a bit of and work with the media a bit more and do some consultancy or whether to do my PhD. And getting that diagnosis made me realize that actually I could torture myself for three years or four years trying to do my PhD, or I could make this decision to focus on the things that I'm naturally good at, the things that I'm 
don't find so challenging the things that come to me easily rather than trying to push in a direction that's always going to be a difficulty for me. So that's what I did. I quit my job at King's, which was a massive deal. Set up the business a kind of couple of years before that. Did two, both at the same time for a long time, which was far too much. Um, but yeah, I've been running my clinic business called City Dietitians for about four years now uh, um, outside of King's. And I've uh, got a team of 10 or 11, maybe even 12 dietitians now all with our own specialities. I also run a consultancy company where we design vitamins and probiotic products for, for different companies. And yeah, I do some TV work, media work, things like this. Fantastic. That's like the most coherent kind of answer to that question I've ever heard. Like, <laughs> what's your life story? Right? Yeah, it's, it's great. Like, <laughs> you've clearly had practice in front of a camera. Um, what is a dietitian? Yeah, great question. Lovely place to start. So a dietitian is like the we're like the medical nutrition people is what I would usually say. So if you have a medical problem that you want advice on in terms of your diet, you need a dietitian. Only a dietitian in the UK. You wouldn't want to see a nutritionist for that. Nutritionists aren't medically trained. You wouldn't want to see a nutritional therapist. They're much more on the alternative therapy spectrum. So dietitians are the medical nutrition people. We're the only people who are allowed to work in hospitals in the NHS, that kind of stuff. Um, nutritionists are basically there to help healthy people get healthier. So they're amazing at public health, incredible at research, but really important to remember that anyone can call themselves a nutritionist. So in this country, the term nutritionist isn't regulated, which means that there are some people who have just done a quick, you know, 30 pound nutritionist, I don't know, training course online and now are calling themselves a nutritionist. So you have to be a little bit careful with the credentials of a nutritionist that you're taking advice from, but that doesn't mean to say there aren't incredible nutritionists out there doing amazing work in lots of different areas. So I don't mean to diminish them as colleagues, they just do a different job to us. Yeah. And so what sort of medical training do you have as a dietitian? A bit like if you think about a physiotherapist, you would say, okay, so a physiotherapist is different to like a massage therapist or a sports therapist. They're qualified people who've gone in and done placements in hospitals and worked alongside doctors and nurses to learn their trade. That's the same as dietitians. So we do three long placements as part of our university training uh, where we go into the hospitals and learn from other dietitians on the job. And then we are registered with the HCPC, the Healthcare Professions Agency, and they help us to regulate everything that we do. So if I do something wrong, I'm accountable and I can lose my registration like a doctor or a nurse could, unlike other people within the profession, sort of the nutrition profession at large, where there's no accountability. So they could say anything at all and something could go really wrong and it's not their fault because there's no one regulating them. Nice. Yeah, I think nutrition is one of those things where occasionally people would ask me, hey, you know, you're a doctor, therefore, like, what should I do about XYZ? I'd be like, that sounds like nutrition. We had like two lectures on it yeah, yeah. in the start of first year. No one cared about it ever since then. And the only contact I had with dietitians was, oh, we're we're feeding this patient through a tube, let's call the dietitian and then get them to do some alchemy and tell us what formula <laughs> to prescribe. Yeah. Um, or there would often be cardiac arrest calls downstairs to the dietitians because a lot of them would faint in yeah. the morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm really unfamiliar with the nutrition side of, I guess, medicine and life yeah. and also with, I guess, the job of a dietitian. But I guess I'm, you know, for, for, for people listening to this who maybe do not have officially diagnosed colorectal problems or bowel mm -hmm. problems or stomas or things like that. What does a dietitian do for a, I guess, normal, healthy person? So dietitians don't get involved very much with normal, healthy people. We're mostly dealing with disease or problems. So most of my patients would have a problem with their bowel. It might not be like a diagnosed thing. They might say, 
I get this really unpleasant wind and it's really bothering me and we can work on that. But generally people will have a problem before they come and see me. In my kind of public facing work, I guess we're talking about gut health education and trying to get people to look after their guts so that we don't end up in the situation where they're in my clinic with a physical problem with their bowel or in surgery because of a physical problem with their bowel. So that's where we talk about how we can really optimize gut health, not only for our bowel health, let's call it, but also for our general health because our gut has a massive impact on our mental health and on our physical health and our risk of loads of different diseases and disorders. And actually the more we look at gut health, the more we realize that it is impacting every part of our body and every system in our body. How did... How does gut health impact all the like the 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 thing that's always struck me whenever I've listened to podcasts where where they're talking about the gut is that it seems like the gut is kind of this sort of black box we don't quite know what's going on but we know that it impacts literally everything. Uh, sure. I wonder if you can kind of break open that black box a bit. To what extent does the gut impact all, all these things that you've talked about? Yeah, I'd love to. Let's talk about that. So obviously on a very basic level, your gut is where all of your nutrition is absorbed and every bit of your body is physically made from the foods that you're eating. So if you imagine your skin is made from proteins and lipids that come from your diet, the things that you're consuming, you're basically just a big walking blob of protein with other bits and pieces floating around in there. So actually everything that we eat has an impact on the structure and function of the whole of our body. So if your gut in terms of its general function isn't great, then we can have real big problems. And these are kind of things, potentially even things like gallstones, which are super common, other bits and pieces, generally just not consuming a very balanced diet. So then your gut has to work harder for various different things. We're using different pathways. So having a healthy gut is super important to the structure and function of the whole of your body and how it's working. But that's mainly we're talking about kind of the first bit of the small bowel. So the bowel, the first bit of the bowel, which is the small bowel, which is meters and meters and meters long, travels into the colon. And in the colon, you've got like, this amazing ecosystem of bacteria and other microorganisms that are constantly communicating with the rest of our body. And this is the bit that we really have been learning more and more about over the last kind of 30 years or so, but it's really come into the fore now. How our microbiome, so the, the bacteria that live in our colon, are interacting with the rest of our body. And how that works is that when we eat various different foods, so let's take plant fiber as an example, you eat some fruits and vegetables, they travel, the bits of it that you can't digest, the bits we can't break down, travel through to our colon where they're fermented by different species of bacteria and yeasts and other types of microorganisms. And in that fermentation process, they produce some gas and they produce other things, but they really importantly produce some metabolites, some things that interact with our bodies. So things like short chain fatty acids, for example, butyrate is the sort of strongest research example that we have. When butyrate is released by probiotic bacteria in the colon, that travels through into the rest of our bloodstream and interacts with the rest of our body. It helps to control inflammation. We've seen incredible work with butyrate production being controlling of the inflammatory cascade associated with COVID, for example. So butyrate is controlling inflammation in the body. Other metabolites interact with our immune system. So 70% of our immune cells live in our, in our bowel, in our colon, and your gut bacteria are constantly interacting with them. And we also produce 95% of the body's serotonin in the gut, which links to our brain health, our mental health, and how we're feeling. So your gut is constantly interacting with the rest of your body, and it's physically, chemically, and hormonally connected to all the other systems in your body. Wow. That's a lot going on. <laughs> Do any patients come to mind or have you have you seen any stories where someone has had like, quote, bad gut health and then it's been transformed into good good gut health and 
then their whole life has changed. Like, I wonder if you can kind of paint paint one of those pictures for us. Oh my God, yeah. Every week in clinic, it's transformative for people. And, you know, we've been lucky enough to showcase some of that on the recent Channel 4 show that I've been on, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But just uh, if you imagine somebody who cannot control their stools, so their gut health and potentially their rectal muscles, for example, are badly damaged by maybe childbirth or just by the aging process. And so everything that they put in the top end, they're constantly fearing having incontinence, fecal incontinence in a supermarket, on the bus, wherever they go. And to be clear with you, this isn't just old people. This happens to young people, people of all ages and stages of their life can experience this for all sorts of different reasons. I think that's probably the biggest example of where what I do as a dietitian can make the biggest difference because if we can help someone to control their bowels so they're no longer fearing having an accident, that obviously has a huge impact on their quality of life. And it's not just things like that. You know, we can get people out of pain through adjusting their diet. If you've got kind of problems with the structure of your bowel, something like diverticular disease, for example, which is a super common condition, unfortunately, it creates problems with the structure of the bowel and that can create a great deal of pain when you're eating particular foods. So we can adjust the diet and get people out of physical pain. And often when I'm working with patients who have things like inflammatory bowel disease, I'll say to them, look, I can't cure your IBD. I can't cure your Crohn's disease or your ulcerative colitis, but I can probably help you to get out of pain and reduce the symptoms. And for them, that's perfect. That's all they're asking for. They're not looking to me to try and fix the problem. They just want some symptom management that they're not necessarily getting medically. And yeah, those are the sorts of things that we deal with every week in clinic. And I guess IBS is probably the biggest one that we see a lot of, and that is less debilitating for some people, but for some people it's incredibly debilitating with really painful bloating and and gas and things like that, which they find very difficult. Yeah. Okay. So let's say, let's say someone's listening to this and they're thinking, hmm, maybe I have a problem with my gut, but I'm not really like, what, uh, what are the sorts of signs and symptoms that someone who doesn't is not is not diagnosed with like inflammatory bowel disease or something might have to make them think huh maybe I should, I should see a dietitian yeah great question so i would say what's helpful is to start with what's normal because we don't talk about poo right so people don't know what's normal and what we found in general is kind of actually people just might live with symptoms that they don't actually have to live with but they just get used to them partly because they're embarrassed to talk to anyone about it but also they've never checked what's normal so in terms of normal bowel function we would say that anything between so passing stool anything between three times a day and three times a week is normal if that changes for you so for example you start off being a three times a day person and suddenly you're a three times a week person that's when you need to get some help something's not quite right there so we call that a change in bowel habit and i'm not talking about having diarrhea occasionally because you've eaten something the night before or had too much to drink. I'm talking about it being consistent. So over about a two-week period, if you notice your bowel habits change significantly for you, that's the time to go and get some help. This consistency of your stool is the next thing to think about. So what we're looking for is kind of like a smooth sausage-shaped poo that holds together when it goes into the toilet itself. So most of the time, that's kind of what we want. Most people will be somewhere either end of that spectrum fluctuating between the two. So sometimes it's too hard, sometimes it's too soft. And that's okay as long as kind of your median your medium range is kind of in that soft sausage snake-like poo territory. Um, and then we think about kind of wider symptoms beyond that. So things like urgency, for example, if you notice that you, when you need a poo, you really have to rush and you are worried about that and it comes on very suddenly, for example, that's when you could get some help. If you find that your poo is really hard and difficult to pass and you're feeling uncomfortable or you're developing hemorrhoids or piles or you're getting anal fissures, so like tears in the bottom, those are things that we could help people with for sure. Um, and then if you think the color of your poo might be a bit funny, it's a interesting thing to talk about but the color of your poo needs to be like a medium brown color is normal 
occasionally you might eat loads of sweet potato and it might be a bit more orange or you might have a green smoothie and it might be a bit more green that's fine but as an average if it's kind of a medium brown color that's great and we don't want it to actually be ridiculously smelly so if your poo is like really foul smelling we would think that maybe you're not absorbing everything from your food and that's something to look at or you might have a really affected microbiome that needs some work if you've got loads of gas that's really uncomfortable for you and or it's particularly smelly that's a time that we can do some things to make that better for you got any abdominal pain at all really important time to get some help even if it's that kind of pain that you're thinking I know it comes and goes I think it's probably okay definitely go and chat to somebody about that because there's things that we can do to make it better so in terms of normal and things that you could get help with I think that kind of covers the basics of of what people might be living with and just putting up with that actually they could get some help with and that are probably signs that something's not quite right in terms of their gut health as, as you were describing the snake-like snake, -like, snake uh, sausage consistency, I was thinking that my poo was often a lot softer than that until I started taking the Heights pro pre prebiotic probiotic nice. that yeah. tablet thing. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm always surprised that, like, oh, this looks like a normal poo. It looks Great. like what I think a normal poo is. Um, so that's been nice. Um, what if someone feels like they their poo is normal based on all these kind of parameters that we've mm -hmm. talked about? Is there any reason for someone with normal poo to be thinking about their like diet and nutrition in that sense? Like, are there other optimizations that healthy people without gut problems can make to improve like productivity, performance, that kind of thing? Yeah, for sure. So, if, if your gut is not quite working optimally, then that can, even though you might not have any specific symptoms, it can still have an impact on your mental health and your mental performance, right? So, your gut is such an integral part of your whole body system and ecosystem. And inevitably, if it's not happy, it's going to be screaming at your brain all the time. And that is noisy and difficult for your brain to cope with. And that can lead to things like brain fog and struggling with focus and concentration, for example. Similarly, if your gut isn't happy, but you don't really know from other symptoms, but you're getting loads of bugs, infections, viruses all the time, you notice you're really susceptible, that's a good time to start looking at your gut health. And I think, I guess, for this audience, what's really important to recognize is this connection between your gut and your brain and how they are constantly communicating with each other for better or worse. So there is a very strong line of communication between your gut and your brain, which we refer to as the gut-brain axis. And again, they are chemically connected through neurotransmitters that are produced in the gut. They are hormonally connected by the HPA axis, and they are physically connected by the vagus nerve. And the chattiest organ between your brain and your gut is your gut. Your gut is constantly telling your brain all sorts of different things and throwing messages up that it's got to deal with. And people might think, oh, it's your brain, your gut's not really doing anything, but actually your brain is busy and it's communicating and it's a lot through those microbes that live in your colon. Sick. <laughs> You're very good at this. Thanks. Not my first time. <laughs> like you've got the whole like. <laughs> I'm just like wow. Um, so w what can I do, for example, uh, as a, as a proxy for people listening to this? My poo is fine once a day. You know, medium brown color, not overly smelly. I think, <laughs> but everyone likes the smell of their own poo apparently. <laughs> um, but. Obviously, I want to kind of maximize my performance and my focus. And actually, one question we, we get so often from our audience is people struggling to focus. And sure. I think often people are like, I struggle to focus with my schoolwork or with my whatever web design side hustle. I must have ADHD as like an immediate option. But I wonder yeah, if there's yeah. gut stuff we can do before we get to that point. Yeah, definitely. I mean, your gut 
health is so because your your gut is constantly communicating with your brain again if your gut is not happy things are communicating differently but also you could just not be producing enough serotonin for various different reasons or your gut might not be sending the right signals up to your brain so you might have if we looked at your microbiome and it's certainly not necessary to do that we can do this in clinic without testing but if we looked at your microbiome we might find that you've just not got enough of these bacteria that are doing this particular important job with brain connection stuff um so what we would suggest then is to really optimize the gut and you know what happens Ali as you know is when people are busy and they're working too hard and they're doing a side hustle and everything else is high pressure or they've got a family and everything else people tend to make their diet quite small in not necessarily in terms of volume but the types of foods that they're eating so they might end up eating the same types of foods on repeat what I see is people there's kind of two camps here the people who do like the meal prep stuff and they eat the same foods five days a week and they think they're being super healthy eating sweet potato and broccoli every day or you have the people who are just living meal to meal prep you know, it's wherever they're going every day, the same sorts of things, but just various different places and nothing's particularly planned or thought through. And inevitably, both of those ways of eating have an impact on your gut health, whether you feel it in your gut or not. So that way of eating limits the types of fibers that your gut bacteria are being fed. And the most important thing for your gut health is that you're eating 30 different plants a week. So trying to eat loads of variety of different types of plants. That includes fruit and veg, but also nuts and whole grains, different types of grains. We're super fixated in this country on like oats and wheat, but actually there's so many different types of grains that our gut really benefits from. So when you're busy and you're struggling and you're eating meal to meal or you're eating the same foods on repeat, what happens is your gut health, your gut sort of function might not change, but your gut health is inevitably not optimized. And that's when you can have these problems with lack of concentration, focus, energy, getting bugs all the time, that kind of stuff. And really interestingly, your gut bacteria communicate with your hypothalamus, so that bit of your brain that controls things like cortisol production. So really early in your life, your gut bacteria dictate where your sort of HPA axis is set, so how much cortisol you release in under given circumstances. And we all need some cortisol, right? But we don't want loads and loads of cortisol because we've got loads of anxiety and stress all the time. We can really struggle to concentrate and to focus. So we can use our gut bacteria to try and reduce that and make things a little bit better in that department. We can use them and harness their powers to get more serotonin, which helps us with better sleep and concentration and focus and all those important things, those happy hormones. And we can also just try and calm down those messages from our gut to our brain, which are distracting our brain all the time. And your gut bacteria are going to be saying, we need more plants. And you're going to be not reading that properly and giving them more sushi. And that's not quite what they want. Wow. So it's, it sounds like you're saying, and please correct me if this is an oversimplification, that changing up what you eat can have a massive impact on your focus, productivity, performance, happiness. Absolutely. Because all of those yeah. things are linked, gut, brain, everything. Yeah, fundamentally. I mean, and proven in amazing research and science, yeah. What kind of research has been done on this? I guess I'm, I'm, I'm thinking healthy people rather than people with official gut problems. Yeah, so uh, the amazing work of John Cryan is a really good place to, look, to start looking at this stuff if people are interested. And he's written an amazing book called The Psychobiotic Revolution. So psychobiotics are these gut bacteria that communicate with our brain. So they're the ones that we're particularly interested in when we develop the height smart probiotic, for example. So work that's been done in that area to start with in rodent models, they used a model of an autistic mouse and a model of a non-autistic mouse, so a sociable mouse. And they took the microbiome, so they took a sample and, and gave the microbiome of the autistic mouse to the sociable mouse. And the sociable mouse starts to show autistic traits, okay? And when they swap them over, the autistic mouse starts to become a sociable mouse just because its gut microbiome has changed. So that was the early work that they did trying to understand how much our gut microbiome is impacted 
impacting our mental health, our mental performance, how our brain is working. So similar studies to that have then been replicated in humans in other places. And to be clear, that autistic spectrum disorder stuff in humans is so complex and we can't replicate that exactly in humans as yet. But there's certainly something going on there, which is what we generally learn from rodent studies. We've also got some great data showing things like increase in production of serotonin when we use particular probiotic species. There's great data showing that using particular probiotic species within treatment diets and things like that, so within treatment within uh, studies, in controlled studies, improves anxiety, depression, all of these kinds of symptoms. And wider nutrients within this world, if we think about things like omega-3s and B vitamins, they've been used in place of anxiety and depression medications, SSRIs, that kind of stuff. And they work as effectively in some people some of the time in studies. So we can use all of these things. And a sim- similar work has been done with the two stra- one, two of the strains we use in the smart probiotic in terms of seeing whether they work as effectively as common anti-depression, anti-anxiety medications. And they do. So much so that there's health claims on them in Canada that people can say these are definitely shown to improve anxiety and depression. So there's great data. It's a young field of research, but it's super exciting. And it's very solid research just showing that the magic that we can harness from our gut. Nice. <laughs> um, sweet. So clearly there's a lot going on. Uh, one of the things you said, um, nice actionable takeaway for me and anyone listening to this, 30 different plants a week. I know. That's a lot. <laughs> it sounds like a lot, but actually if you break it down into days, you're looking for about five different plants a day. So what you would say is like, for example, for breakfast, if you had like a multi-grain cereal or a whole grain cereal, you're going to have loads of different in there, in there. Chuck some seeds in, chuck some nuts in, chuck some dried fruit in. I love freeze-dried berries. Amazing. Chuck some of that stuff in. And actually you're kind of already there with at least five different plants in there. Then at lunchtime, maybe at, between your lunch and your breakfast, you could have a handful of nuts there lunchtime make sure you're having at least a couple of different veg in there maybe chuck some seeds on top and then in the afternoon you want to have some fruit as a snack and then the evening make sure you're having some veg like actually if you spread it out like that it's totally achievable for people unless you're doing one of these funny restrictive diets that you know nobody would recommend anyway all right, we're just going to take a quick break from the podcast to introduce our sponsor, which is very excitingly Huel. I have been a paying customer of Huel since 2017, so it's been about six years now that I've been using Huel fairly regularly. I started eating Huel in my fifth year of medical school, and I've been using Huel regularly ever since because, you know, I like to be productive. I've, you know, my calendar is full with a lot of things, and often I don't have the time or don't make the time to have a particularly healthy breakfast or a particularly healthy lunch. My favorite flavor is salted caramel because for 400 calories, you get 40 grams of protein, which is absolutely insane and you also get a decent healthy mix of carbohydrates and fiber and fat along with 26 different vitamins and minerals which are all very good for the body there's nine different flavors of this to choose from my favorite is a the banana version and also the salted caramel version so what i do is i take my two scoops i put them into my nutribullet blender type thing although you can just use a normal shaker if you want i mix it up normally with water but a little bit of milk to add a bit more of a milkshake like consistency to it and then i just sip that while i'm on my desk doing my work in the morning and it ensures that i get a very healthy breakfast in that's nutritionally complete rather than some high sugar cereal, which is what I would have defaulted to instead. Also, Huel is ridiculously reasonably priced. Like a meal for 400 calories comes out to £1.68 per meal, which is super, super cheap compared to what the alternative would be if you were ordering takeout, for example. Anyway, if you like the idea of getting these cheap and healthy and nutritionally complete meals in your diet, then head over to huel.com forward slash deep dive. And if you use that URL, huel.com forward slash deep dive, they will send you a free t-shirt, which are quite nice, and also a free kind of shaker bottle type thing with your first order. So thank you so much for sponsoring this episode. 
This episode is very kindly brought to you by Trading212. Now, people ask me all the time for advice about investing because I've made a bunch of videos about it on the YouTube channel. And my advice for most people is generally invest in broad stock market index funds, which is exactly what you can do completely for free with Trading212. It's a great app that lets you trade stocks and funds and ETFs and foreign exchange if you really want to. And one of the great things about the app is that if you're new to the world of investing, you can actually invest with fake money. You don't have to put real money in. They've got a practice mode where you invest fake money and then it actually tracks what the market is doing in real time. So you can see, had I invested £100 into this thing, what would my return have been X weeks or X months further down the line? Once you've got some comfort with that, then it's super easy to deposit money into your trading 212 account. You can use Apple Pay like I do initially, or you can use a direct bank transfer. And then once the money is in your trading 212 account, then you can invest it in basically whatever you want. Now, if you're based in the UK, you might be familiar with the concept of an ISA, which is an individual savings account, which is basically a tax-free wrapper that you can put money in. You can put £20,000 in every year, up to £20,000, and it resets every April. And then all that money can grow and it's completely tax-free for the rest of your life. And if you want to sign up for an ISA, you can sign up for one completely for free, also on Trading212. So if you haven't yet filled up your ISA allowance, or at least put some money into your ISA for this year, that might be a good step forward. The app also lets you auto-invest, which is a great thing, because then you can automatically invest a percentage of your paycheck into the thing every month. And so if you haven't yet started with investing and you want to give it a go, then you can download the app on the App Store. And if you use the coupon code ALI, A-L-I, at the checkout, that will give you a totally free share worth up to £100. It's available on iPhone and Android, and you can check it out by typing in Trading212 into your respective app store. So thank you so much, Trading212, for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, at the moment, I'm trying to do a sort of high-protein, low-calorie thing to cut with my health coach and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> but, you know, his, his thing is like, you know, at least for a while, let's just try and eat the same thing every day broadly so that you know what's coming into your body and then we can see how that affects your weight, all that kind of stuff. I mean, you can see me cringing, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely terrible advice. So I literally, I, I've got some content planned for this week around what terrible advice I see from personal trainers. And I'm mm. sure your guy knows what he's doing in terms of personal training. But the worst things that personal trainers do, there's three things that I see them doing regularly to people. One is putting them on the same foods on repeat because you're starving off your essential gut bacteria. And some of those really important gut bacteria are actually protecting you from obesity. So they're working to help you to control your body weight. And so if you're starving them, you're making your life much more difficult in the long run. Secondly, it's like this really low fiber diet typically. And so that's just as a measure of them cutting out carbohydrates. Nobody's looked to check because they don't know what they don't know, right? No one's checked that there's at least 30 grams of fiber in there, which is what we all need every day for healthy to, for healthy stools and a healthy bowel. Usually they're around 16 grams of fiber when we calculate them. It's just half of what we need. Um, and then the other thing is having loads of red meat or loads of animal pro products generally. <laughs> so the World Cancer Research Fund says we should only have three portions of red meat per week. And that's 500 grams, 350 to 500 grams in total. Otherwise, we're putting ourselves in higher, total. In total. Otherwise, not like not every day. No, nope. <laughs> 350 to 500 grams total a week. Bloody Otherwise, hard. we're putting ourselves <laughs> at higher risk of bowel cancer. And so, again, these meal plans that people are given actually are starving your gut bacteria, which puts you at risk of loads of different problems, putting you at higher risk of things like cancer, which nobody wants, and all kinds of other things. But it's it's not the fault of the personal trainer. It's going circling back to this conversation of nutrition, people in the nutrition space giving advice on things they just shouldn't really be giving advice on, right? So if you want nutrition advice and tailored specific nutrition advice for you, you need to see we've got an amazing sports dietitian on the team at City Dietitians who can tailor all these things for you and give you a proper tailored plan that know that you can actually manage in terms of everything as opposed to just thinking about that one thing which is the aesthetics which everyone gets fixated on oh that's handy i'll book an appointment with that'll, that'll be good <laughs> um 30 grams of fiber what does 30 grams of fiber look like in a diet well it's about half of what the average person is getting 
Oh. Uh, sorry, no, it's about double what the average person is getting. So most people in England eat less than half of what they actually need in terms of fibre every day. So most people are getting around 15 grams of fibre a day. So we need to make sure we're adding lots of extra things in. Things have happened within the social media space that have made that happen. So for example, people now demonise breakfast cereals where actually yeah. loads of us got loads of fibre from breakfast cereals every day. Women were mainly dependent on breakfast cereals for iron for a long time and slightly different now. But actually we cut these things out because an influencer tells us to. And actually there's consequences for everything that we move around in our diet, right? So thinking about where your sources of fiber are. So we're talking about whole grains, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, that kind of stuff. Where are your sources of those in your diet and could you maximize them? So for example, swapping white rice for whole grain rice is a really great step in the right direction. White rice for whole grain pasta. If you're having like mince, for example, so minced beef, add some lentils in there, just bulking up the fiber a little bit. Leave the skin on your vegetables, on root vegetables, that kind of stuff. Leave the skin on, you get a bit more fiber there. Make sure you snack on fruit, those kinds of things. It's basically the stuff that your mum would have told you to do when you were a kid. It's all that stuff we need to do to try and boost our fiber intake. And most people just aren't getting enough. What's the deal with breakfast cereal? My, in, in, uh, my influencer adult understanding is breakfast cereal is bad because lots of sugar and American advertising companies convinced us that breakfast was the most important meal of the day. That's BS. We should all be intermittent fasting <laughs> and just skipping breakfast in the morning anyway, because 16, eight fasting is good for you. So therefore breakfast cereal is evil. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I hear all those things as well. I think the key thing with breakfast cereal is it can very easily become what we might call an ultra processed food. And that's where it's just got loads of extra additives in it that you wouldn't recognize in your kitchen, preservatives, emulsifiers, that kind of stuff. Uh, lots of extra sugar, salt, all those kinds of things. So we want to avoid those ones. So the ones that look like they're super commercial, we'll probably want to push them out the window. But you can add things in, in terms of making your own sort of breakfast cereal. You can toast some oats, toast some stuff to make granola, that kind of stuff. Some of the more natural granolas would be a good choice for you. But in terms of fasting, there's no evidence of any benefits of fasting beyond weight control. So there is some reasonable data to show that fasting can improve weight control. But also there's this counteracting data coming through now where people who don't eat enough in the morning and tend to overcompensate and eat much more in the evening. And that's worse for us from a metabolic perspective. We've kind of got this biological night of around 9pm where all of our processing of everything slows right down. So things can sit around in our bloodstream a lot longer and cause more trouble if we're eating too late at night. So actually, if you're someone who wakes up hungry and you're dragging yourself through till 12 o'clock into your eating window and you're feeling terrible, you've got headaches and you feel awful, that's obviously not the right way for you to be eating. Your body, and we're all different from a circadian rhythm perspective, right? Our body clock is all different. So if you're someone who feels hungry in the morning, you should eat in the morning. Just listen to your body, be a normal person. <laughs> if you are someone who just doesn't feel very hungry at night, you might find it easier to finish eating at six o'clock and that might work really well for you. But really importantly, if you're trying intermittent fasting and you notice that you're really loading those calories later in the day, it's probably not right for you. Most studies will show that actually if you have some calories in the morning and front load your calories a little bit, you'll reduce your calories later in the day, which is metabolically a bit better for us. What about things like chicken and fish? What are like, how much chicken and fish should I be eating? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> so your body, your, your bowel doesn't particularly like red meat. It certainly doesn't like processed meat. So the, the data on processed meat says little, if any, processed meat for protection of bowel cancer. So processed meat would be things like sausages, bacon, even things like cured meats, that kind of stuff is just not great for our bowel health. Um, any animal meat, any, any animal proteins, our body, our bowel can quickly find that too much. So a good example that people might recognize is if you ate like a meat feast pizza 
or like had a massively heavy meaty meal, usually your gas the next day or later that evening is going to be pretty foul smelling. And that's because when we have too much animal protein in particular, it's then some of that leftover protein that we can't absorb and digest is being fermented by really bad types of bacteria. They're really not good guys that we don't want to be feeding. And when they ferment stuff, they release methane and sulfur and these bad smelling gases. So if you're having really foul smelling wind, the chances are you might be overfeeding those guys that don't you don't want to be feeding them too much. So we can help to balance that out clinically and in, with treatment. Um, so excess protein from any source, excess animal protein from any source is not ideal for people. So your gut health, your gut bacteria also really like plant protein. So things like soya and tofu, that kind of thing. So ultimately it's about getting that balance right. And if you're someone who is having meat for lunch, like twice a day, you're probably having too much meat. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, how, how do I get my protein if not from meat? Great question. So you can use plant sources of protein. So like tofu, soy and products, that kind of stuff. And obviously we want it to also not be ultra processed. So I'm not talking about that Beyond Meat Burger or that highly processed yeah. vegan product. <laughs> what I'm talking about is adding tofu to your stir fry, for example, using the minimally processed soya mints in place of beef mints, for example. Still great sources of protein for you and absolutely no harm. Eggs are slightly less um, dramatic in terms of your bowel function than uh, meat is, so a bit easier for you to digest. And fish is even better. So if you're having fish regularly, that's great for you in terms of protein source, also great for your brain. Lots of benefits to having fish a bit more regularly than meat. What are the benefits of fish? Fish is magical. <laughs> We've all kind of evolved to need a lot of fish in our diet. And in England, we just, like, nobody eats the two portions of oily fish a week that is recommended, right? If we did, the supermarkets would be sold out tomorrow. We need two portions of oily fish a week for our brain health. It's really, really important for controlling inflammation in the brain, the structure of your brain. My very clever colleague, Kimberly Wilson, says that if you take out if you don't eat oily fish, it's a bit like taking out 25% of the bricks of your house and replacing them with polystyrene. 25% of your brain wants to be made from oily fish, right? So if you take it out of your diet, it's a bit like replacing 25% of the bricks in your house with polystyrene. It kind of looks the same structurally, but under a strong wind, you can have a real problem. And it's very much the same with our brain health. So you really want to make sure you're getting at least two portions of oily fish a week or taking an omega-3 supplement. If you're a vegan, that could come from an algae oil source, and that's equally as good in terms of our brain function. But also your gut bacteria love omega-3s. So it's really good for helping to promote the populations of um, beneficial bacteria that helps control inflammation in the body, all that kind of stuff. So omega-3 from fish is super, super important for our bodies, but it's also a great source of lean protein. What do we mean by oily fish? So oily fish is like the ones that taste a bit more fishy, but salmon is a great example that people find really accessible. So that's good, but also mackerel is perfect. We could use sardines, that kind of stuff. The ones that are in tins, they're a bit more fishy. Those are the ones okay. that people would benefit from the most. Tinned tuna? No, unfortunately not an oily fish. Oh, I know. That's annoying. And that's what we all eat, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So salmon twice a week would be good for me. Perfect. Fantastic. I like salmon. Salmon is tasty. <laughs> um, to what extent can I just be like, you know what? I accept all this stuff, but I can't be asked to change my diet too much. If I just take the appropriate number of supplements, I'm good, right? Yeah, no, no, it doesn't really work like that, unfortunately. <laughs> so we need to think of supplements as being like the icing on the cake, right? So we still need to do the foundational work if those if we want those supplements to be working for us. So it doesn't matter how many pills you pop. Ultimately, if your diet is terrible, you're really stressed all the time, you're not looking after your mental health, you're not exercising, you're not looking after your body, you're still going to struggle, you're still going to suffer. So 
you need to be doing some of those foundational things and then taking your supplements on top to try and get things in line. And with probiotics, that's even more important because you can take as many probiotic bacteria as you like in capsule form or as kefir or however you want to. But if you're not feeding them with plant fiber when they get to your colon, they're not going to survive. There's nothing there for them to eat. So we have to make sure that we feed them when they get there. Some people will put prebiotics, so food for good bacteria, in their supplements, but actually need quite a lot of that prebiotic fiber to make any difference. And actually, the best way of getting that prebiotic fiber is from your food, from the food that you're eating. So it's really important to encourage people to still maintain a healthy diet and look after the other things, um, because we need to do all the things, unfortunately. Nice. Okay, so less than, well, 500 grams red meat per week. Preferably two Less portions. Less than 500 grams, yeah. 350 to 500. You've got Pref- that down. I've got it down. Yep. I'm like, damn. It's like a single steak. It's like half that. Yeah. <laughs> um, 30 grams of fiber a day, which most of us are not getting. So we need to add more seeds, grains, whole grains, yep. fruit, Perfect. veg that has like texture and stuff to it because mm-hmm. that's fiber. Two portions of oily fish a week, adding adding in soy mints and tofu to replace animal products yep. some Plant of the time. Yep. Anything else? What are some other... Your gut bacteria does not like processed food. So we think that things like, well, if you imagine preservatives that are put in processed food are there to to make sure bacteria doesn't grow, you can then extrapolate that and think, okay, well, what's that doing in my body? So when I'm consuming these foods with preservatives, actually, are they killing off my good bacteria or at least stopping them from growing? So that's something to think about. Emulsifiers that are in lots of processed foods and also in lots of foods that are, have got a bit of a health halo, like protein shakes and mm. protein products, that kind of stuff. Emulsifiers, we think, are disrupting the lining of people's bowels. So when we have too much of those kinds of things, the tight junctions between the cells in your bowel wall, we think are being disrupted and opening up a little bit, allowing too much inflammation into the body and causing all kinds of different problems, but also disrupting that really important mucosal layer in the bowel that is the home for our good bacteria. So emulsifiers not great um they're in plant milks and stuff like that so we need to keep a little eye out for those um anything that is kind of an added ingredient that you don't recognize is something that we want to be a little bit careful of and there's this amazing data now about ultra processed foods and how much they are impacting our risk of cancers and all kinds of other conditions so an ultra processed food is something that we do want to consider trying to avoid again lots of vegan products would end up in that ultra processed food category even though they've got this health halo so we need to watch out for ultra processed foods defined by all of these ingredients that you don't recognize we want to think about um your your gut bacteria just don't like them for lots of different reasons but that's part of it processed meats in particular gut bacteria really don't like those when we're stressed when we're really anxious all the time we produce more stomach acid we produce more enzymes things happen differently in our gut lots of people will recognize that when they're stressed they maybe have diarrhea or wind or they're bloated or they're uncomfortable and so that's because when you're stressed your structure and function of your gut changes slightly and everything is more difficult but also when it's a more acidic environment that changes the ph of the gut when the ph of the gut is changed that has an impact on which bacteria can thrive and survive and ultimately if you've got too much stomach acid and there's too, it's too much of an acidic environment, you're going to develop more of the gut bacteria that are associated with more stress, more inflammation, worse health outcomes. So stress management, careful with ultra-processed food and processed food in general, 
and also drink enough water. Gut bacteria really like to be very well hydrated. So there's things that you can do as well as adding things in just to be a little bit wary of. But one of the nice things about gut health is really I'm talking to people about adding things in. What more do you need to take in as opposed to taking things away, which is kind of what ultra like diet culture is all about, right? So it's about mostly about adding things in. And ultimately what we see from the data is when people add more plants in, it displaces some of these less healthy things in their diet anyway. So if you're snacking on nuts and fruit, you're not going to be snacking so much on, on you know, protein bars and stuff like that so that helps people to move into these healthier patterns anyway love it um does tea coffee count as hydration or does it have to be like water water so tea is quite good for hydration and coffee and tea both contain something called polyphenols which your gut bacteria love polyphenols are these kind of plant compounds that are in all different plants and really importantly and interestingly the different colored plants all have different polyphenols in so like the purple ones are great for your brain health and the orange and yellow ones are great for controlling inflammation and diabetes and stuff like that so they all have slightly different jobs in our bodies and tea and coffee contain important polyphenols that are really healthy and helpful for us but coffee you lose a bit of hydration every time you drink a coffee so it kind of has a net negative effect in terms of your overall hydration and that's because it's a diuretic same as tea so it makes you wee more and you lose more water and then you end up not as well hydrated so what I recommend to all my patients is that while they're making a cup of tea or they're making a coffee just drink a small glass of water on the side and then you know that you've got enough going in and also just trying to make sure people are drinking water through the day. Wait, so the 300 mils of fluid in this, I'm net like less than that. Well, there's, the, the data effect? is not quite perfect, yeah. but I would say you're probably only getting maybe about 25 mils from that. Really? Something like that, yeah. Damn, okay, I should drink more water. You should. Cool. We all should. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, how, how do I know if a food is processed? What are some rules of thumb? I mean, essentially, if it comes in a packet, if it's been through a factory yep. and it's come in a packet, it's going to be processed like to some degree. Sausages. Sausages, um, any kind of like ready meal type stuff. There's lots of white bread that would fall, general breads that would fall into that ultra processed category because to make bread you need uh, flour and you need yeast and you need salt and you need water. But the ingredients list on some of the breads that you might pick up on the supermarket shelf is going to be so long and so complicated and have all kinds of preservatives and emulsifiers and stuff like that in it that actually ends up being an ultra processed food. And we're in a difficult time, Ali, because people are struggling right it's a financial crisis people are struggling to eat anything at all so it's really important that we are careful about not demonizing food staples that people can afford if you're living in a food living off food from a food bank and all you can get your hands on is baked beans and ultra processed bread and cereal you've got to eat it right i don't want anyone to take away from this that it's so harmful for their health they should go hungry that's not the case at all we're talking really here about refining health as opposed to people who are struggling right so there are ultra processed foods that we need to be careful of and we need to look at those labels. It's about those long ingredients lists with emulsifiers, things that have got a code like colorings, e-numbers, that kind of stuff. Those are the sorts of things to look out for. And that would be your, your clue that that's an ultra processed food. Nice. So let's say you and I go to a local, I don't know, grilled chicken shop after this and, we get, and we're going to get a takeaway. Or just in general, when at when out at a restaurant, what are some good rules of thumbs for what people should order or should avoid ordering? I, like, I think if you're eating out, unless you're eating out every day or super, super regularly, <laughs> you should enjoy it, right? It's an important thing to so be able to eat socially and to be relaxed when you're eating and not to worry about it too much. But the same kinds of rules would apply. So try to eat as many plants as you can, even if that means ordering an extra side of broccoli or spinach or whatever it is on the side of what you're having. We know that frying potatoes, for example, has an impact on our health in general. So fried potato products are not great for us. So trying to limit those a little bit. I mean, chips are literally my favorite thing. So trying to limit those a little bit is helpful and important for people 
people. So just sort of thinking, especially if you're eating out really regularly, where are my sources of vegetables here? Am I getting enough? Am I getting some lean protein? And trying to kind of piece things together in your mind about what's going on in, like, on a, if you zoom out of your diet a little bit, what have I had to eat today? What do I need more of? What do I not need so much of? Is helpful. But if you're eating out, you should enjoy it and have a nice time. Nice. Um, <laughs> what's the deal with organic food? Yeah, I mean, nothing really. It's just really a marketing term. So there's no great data to suggest that eating an organic diet is going to have any significant health benefits for you. The pesticides and stuff that are used in the food chain now are very carefully researched. There's very little data to show there's anything that might do you any harm. What is potentially more interesting in that field, which isn't really talked about, is that when soil has been really heavily uh, commercially farmed, it becomes less rich in nutrients, then your fruit and vegetables can become less rich in nutrients. Whereas if we scale that down to kind of buying locally, so from your local farmer's market, for example, less heavily um, you know, farmed land, more nutrients in the soil, more nutrients in your fruits and vegetables. So buying, and also food miles. So any food that's been through various different lorries and everything else or airplanes to get to your plate, that's going to have a depletion of those nutrients over time. So if you can buy local as much as you can, that's much more relevant really to our nutritional status than buying organic necessarily is. Oh, nice. Um, what's the deal with uh, Diet Coke and other non-sugar, zero sugar, but lots of artificial sweetener type drinks? Yeah, your gut bacteria don't like artificial sweeteners, unfortunately. Um, you know, they're, they're safe from like a cancer perspective and all that kind of stuff. There's not so much, don't worry too much about that kind of hype. But what we do know is that when we have artificial sweeteners, our body is anticipating having sugar and things change to get ready to have that sugar. And when it doesn't come, that has an impact. So there's data to suggest that it increases our insulin production, for example, which makes us ultimately, ultimately a bit hungrier and can have an impact on our general health as well. So ideally, sweeteners need to go in the no thank you bucket as well, which is difficult for people, right? Because you know when people are trying to get off sugar, sweeteners seem to be a good thing. And, and to be clear, if you're someone who is having loads of sugar right now, you're better off having some sweeteners and trying to wean yourself down a little bit rather than kind of trying to go cold turkey, which will ultimately probably fail. Mm. When I speak to people who have lots of Diet Coke in their diet or diet drinks in general, I generally say, all right, let's swap one, let's do like an alternate thing. So if you're having four a day at the moment, let's go for like swap one for like a sparkling water, then have one next time, then have a sparkling water, then have another one and just try to reduce it slightly rather than taking them away altogether. What's the deal with fruit juices? So fruit juice can have some benefits, right? It's got loads of vitamins and minerals in it and stuff like that. So some useful stuff, but also it's a, still a, like a slightly processed food. And that means that our body handles it differently to how it would handle the whole fruit, for example. So if you eat, you'd struggle to eat like five oranges, but you could have a glass of orange juice, even quite a small one that's got the juice from five oranges in it. So it actually ends up being quite a lot of fructose, the fruit sugar there. And it's just a bit more difficult for our body to process it then. We just end up having a bit more of a blood sugar spike and that kind of stuff that we don't really want to be encouraging. So a small glass of fruit juice every day is great. We're talking about something like 150 mils, but most people are chugging like a big bottle of fruit juice and that can end up being just, just more sugar than you want to be consuming in one go, basically. Um is tomato juice special? So there's some interesting data around lycopene from tomatoes, which is a polyphenol, and uh, it's protection against things like prostate cancer, for example, in men. So there is some benefits, that kind of stuff. Lycopene is also really good for your eyes and other organs in your body. And of course, tomatoes have a lot less sugar in them than oranges or apples or whatever other sort of juice you might have. So again, a small glass of tomato juice would be good. You're still better off eating the tomatoes themselves because you get all the fiber and all the other benefits then. I'm I'm just gonna throw some bait at you because sure, I've all, all, all the all the health claims I've heard. Um, <laughs> bananas are bad because they don't have fiber. 
bananas are great for you. This is I, I, there's a medical conference a few years ago where, and it's famed now where there's all this sort of really famed like low carb community there, and we can talk a bit more about low carb and why it's a bit dangerous. But like the low carb community have demonised bananas, and there was a medical conference with proper doctors, and everyone booed a banana when someone said, and then I ate a banana, and this is what it did to my blood sugars. Everyone in the audience booed. They booed a banana. This is how messed up this whole world has become. That is wild to me. If, you know, let's say five years ago, I could at least we could all just at least agree that everyone needs to eat more fruits and vegetables. And now the low carbers and the carnivores have come along. And even when I say you just need to eat more vegetables, but those people are like, no, no, not true. You shouldn't be eating this. Shouldn't be eating that. Nonsense. More plants, the better. Nice. Okay, because I love bananas, and I've been being like, oh, banana bad because carb and low no, fiber. No, no, no you're all good. Um, low carb. What's going on there? Just starving off your colonic friends. I see lots and lots of patients in clinic who have had, who've been on a ketogenic diet in inverted commas or been on a very low carbohydrate diet and ended up with really terrible IBS, ended up with horrendous piles because they were so constipated, ended up with all kinds of trouble. And the whole grains that we need to eat in, in order for our gut bacteria to be as healthy as possible come from all sorts of different sources of whole grains. And so when we cut out carbs altogether, we're not having any grains whatsoever in our diet. And then we're starving off like really crucial species of probiotic bacteria that do these amazing things in our body that we talked about before. So when you go on a low carb diet, you're starving off some of your really important friends in your colon, you're not feeding them. And that leads to all kinds of trouble, including overpopulation of negative types of bacteria, which have negative consequences on our health. So eating a wide variety of foods including grains and pulses and all that kind of stuff is really really important for our overall health and particularly our bowel health so if i am trying to if i'm trying to get shredded and <laughs> you know keep the protein fairly high reduce the calories um my tactics so far has been avoid anything that remotely looks like a carb unless a friend has got chips because it doesn't count if i steal a few you know <laughs> a, a few of theirs it sounds like you're suggesting the carbohydrates are evil approach is kind of bad and instead i should be like maybe i'll have a little bit less rice than i normally would but i've still got that in my system yeah totally or have whole grain rice because you just can't physically eat as much of it so whole grain carbohydrates keep us full for a long time like protein does so when we're trying to manage our weight satiety being full is really really important so having higher protein diet good having higher whole grains really good for maintaining satiety, keeping you full between meals, stopping you snacking. And when people move to like having a small piece of fish and then loads of green veg, they're just starving all the time. Like it's miserable and it's not good for you ultimately. So let's try and balance that out a little bit, get some whole grain carbohydrates in there. And I'm not talking about you going and eating a massive bowl of white rice or having, I don't know, a massive bowl of pasta. We're talking about having, introducing some more whole grain carbohydrates in your diet to feed your friends, keep you fuller for longer, and also try to manage your weight in the way that you want it to be managed. All right, we're going to take a very quick break from this episode to introduce our sponsor, which is Brilliant.org. I've been using Brilliant for the last several years, and they're a fantastic online platform for courses in maths and science and computer science. Brilliant is a fantastic resource for anyone who wants to develop new skills, but especially if you work or you want to work in a STEM-related field, it's an absolute no-brainer for being able to level up your knowledge of these topics. Brilliant has an enormous library of courses that cover all sorts of topics. And the courses are particularly good because they take a very first principles approach to the topic that they're trying to teach. Like it's not just that they spoon feed you information and expect you to memorize it, like often we were taught in school, but it's more like they teach you a principle and then you apply it with some interactive puzzle or game or activity of some sort. And then you teach you a little bit more and then you apply it a little bit more. 
And it turns into this really interesting kind of engaging teaching system, which is actually similar to the way that we were taught at Cambridge when I was in med school there, where you learn a little bit and then you apply it and then you learn a bit more and you're generally paired with an expert in the field and you kind of learn together and figure it out and build the building blocks of the knowledge in your own mind over time, rather than kind of being spoon fed a fire hose of information and expected to regurgitate it. One of my favorite courses on Brilliant, other than all the stuff on computer science, which is like my specialist subject outside of medicine, um, but they've got a really cool course on scientific thinking. And this course explores the laws of physics and engineering and just helps you generally get an understanding of how the world works. Brilliant are also constantly updating their lessons and courses. So for example, they released a new course on crypto back when that was blowing up so people could understand that. They have a really interesting course on neural networks and how they work, which feeds into all the artificial intelligence stuff. And it's just a generally great way of keeping up with all these topics in the field of STEM. So if any of that sounds up your street, then do head over to brilliant.org forward slash deep dive. And if you're one of the first 200 people to hit that link, which is also in the video description and in the show notes, then you'll get 20% off the annual premium subscription. So thank you so much, Brilliant for sponsoring this episode and let's get right back to the podcast. This episode is very kindly brought to you by WeWork. Now, this is particularly exciting for me because I have been a full paying customer of WeWork for the last two years now. I discovered it during, you know, when the pandemic was in the, on the verge of being lifted and I'd spent like the whole year just sort of sitting in my room making YouTube videos. But then I discovered WeWork and I was a member, me and Angus, my team members, we were members of the WeWork in Cambridge and they have like hundreds of other locations worldwide as well. And it was incredible because we had this fantastic, beautifully designed office space to go to, to work. And we found ourselves like every day, just at nine o'clock in the morning, just going to WeWork because it was a way nicer experience working from the co-working space than it was just sitting at home working. These days, what me and everyone on my team has is the all access pass, which means you're not tied to a specific WeWork location, but it means you can use any of their several hundred co-working spaces around London, around the UK, and also around the world. And one of the things I really love about the co-working setup is that it's fantastic as a bit of a change of scenery. So these days I work from home, I've got the studio at home, but if I need to get some focused writing work done and I've been, I'm feeling a bit drained just sitting at my desk all day, I'll just pop over to the local WeWork, which is about a 10 minute walk from where I am. I'll take my laptop with me. I'll get some free coffee from there. I'll get a few snacks and it's just such a great vibe and you get to meet cool people. I've made a few friends through meeting them at WeWork and it's just really nice being in an environment, almost like a library, but kind of nicer because there's like a little bit of soft music in the background and there's other kind of startup bros and creators and stuff in, in there as well. And it's just my absolute favorite co-working space of all time. It's super easy to book a desk or book a conference room using the app. And it's a great place to meet up with team members if you're gonna collaborate and you'll live in different places. They've got unlimited tea and coffee and herbal teas and drinks on tap. And they've got soundproof booths in which to take Zoom calls and meetings. Anyway, if you're looking for a co-working space for you or your team, then I'd 100% recommend WeWork. Like I said, I've been a paying customer for theirs for the last two years, which is why it's particularly exciting that they're now sponsoring this episode. And if you want to get 50% off your first booking, then do head over to we.co forward slash Ali. And you can use the coupon code Ali at checkout ALI to get 50% off your first booking. So thank you so much, WeWork, for sponsoring this episode. What's the deal with a ketogenic diet? Loads of tech bros are particularly like, big on that. I know. I wish they would stop. <laughs> <laughs> so the ketogenic diet was developed for children with epilepsy, which I think is a fairly commonly known story now. The only indication for a ketogenic diet is for children and adults who have epilepsy. Really? Because, yeah, totally. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. So we use it in clinical practice for that sole purpose, nothing else. And there is some really interesting data and useful data now that suggests that lower carbohydrate diets are helpful for weight control but there are inevitably consequences to that in terms of microbiome and other things. So lower carbohydrate diets useful and generally reasonably sustainable for people who need to lose a lot of weight over a long period of time. But ketogenic diets where the carbohydrate intake is so low are 
like almost consistently completely unsustainable for people, meaning that they then fail on potentially another diet. They feel like they're a failure, nothing can happen, they can't do anything. Their kind of self-esteem, their self-efficacy goes right down. People give up on weight loss and everything gets to be a disaster. So it's all about balance and managing things properly. And no qualified dietitian or other healthcare professional would recommend a ketogenic diet to anyone because we are aware of the consequences. It's just the, I don't know, shouty people that are not properly qualified in this area that are doing it. What are your thoughts on one meal a day? I mean, can you get 30 plants in one meal a day, Ali? Probably not. Yeah, exactly. That's my thoughts on it. Essentially, that's a summary of my thoughts on it. You cannot possibly get all of the nutrients that you need for one day in one meal because you can't physically fit it into your body. And so ultimately, you're going to be affecting your gut health, affecting your general health. And, you know, if you think about the opportunities that you've got to have oily fish twice a week, for example, you're going to have to think about that over one meal rather than having more than one opportunity to have those really healthy things. So if you think you can fit at least five portions of fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and all the other stuff that you need to have to be healthy into one meal a day, hats off to you, but I don't think you'll be able to fit it in your body. <laughs> nice. um, what's the deal with the carnivore diet? Oh my God. The carnivore diet is just, I think, one of the worst things that's happened recently, isn't it? I just, it's it's horrendous for your gut health, right? Horrendous. You're obviously completely starving off your microbiome. These guys are inevitably going to end up with, and it is mostly guys, are going to end up with heart disease, with high cholesterol, with all kinds of problems. But their colons are going to be an absolute mess because they're basically only feeding those negative bacteria that are having health negative health consequences because their diet is just protein. So for anyone that doesn't know, and please don't Google it, the carnivore diet is where you just eat meat. And there was this guy, I can't even remember what he called himself now, but he was like the king of the carnivores, right? The liver king. Liver king. Oh, yeah. This dude was eating like raw brain and testicles and all kinds of stuff and saying that you had to do this stuff to follow a proper ancestral lifestyle. And then it's recently come out that, of course, he was actually just taking loads of steroids and loads and like spending something like $15,000 a month on his steroid regime to look the way that he did, whilst all the time he was amassing like millions of followers claiming that he wasn't taking any steroids at all. And just just for a little reminder for anyone who's not sure, anyone who looks like they're taking steroids is definitely taking steroids. (laughs) Don't doubt it. Just go with your instinct and think, yeah, it would be really difficult to get like that just from eating brains and, and testicles, right? It just doesn't work like that. It's not how the body works. <laughs> um, what do you think? So how do dietitians feel about the word diet? Great question. I think it's it's such a difficult world that we live in. And I guess when the word dietitian came along, it wasn't associated with diet culture and the negative sides, like aspects of that that there is now. And, you know, we sort of go through these discussions as a profession about whether dietitian is a good word for us because it has, people often still say to me, oh, so you help people to lose weight. Like, I, I don't do that at all. We're very medical, as you know, and like dietitian might be working in in with people with kidney problems or I, I worked in intensive care for a long time. We work with cancer patients. We just do this medical stuff. And none of it is about trying to help people lose weight. Some, some dietitians do work in obesity management, but it's maybe, I don't know, less than 10% of the profession. So diet and diet culture are synonymous with bad news and this way that all these diets that we're talking about the keto diet the carnivore diet all of this kind of stuff even fasting is all about making generally healthy people thinner and being fixated on thinness as part of people 
feeling better about themselves because we live in this kind of uh, fat phobic society. It's all very complicated these days. And I think one of the things that's important to recognize is that being very overweight and eating a very poor quality diet, not exercising, not looking after your body, being very stressed is really, really bad for you. But actually all of our bodies are meant to be a different shape and size. And sometimes bits of our lives are dedicated to being as healthy as we can be. And other times in your life, you might be raising children or working two jobs or have your side hustle as well. And if you add the pressure of being as thin as you possibly can be or shredded as you possibly can be into that mix, you're putting so much pressure on yourself and it's just not healthy for you. And you're going to be full of cortisol, which makes you carry more weight anyway. So we have to have kind of a elevated view on our body shape and size. What's normal and healthy for us might be normal and not be normal and healthy for somebody else. So Diet culture and dieting is a complicated and difficult area that is very uh, controversial these days, interestingly. So it's something we I'm constantly thinking about in terms of my title as a dietitian because it just feels not quite accurate as to what I do, really. How has diet culture evolved over the last, let's say, 20, 30 years? What have been the trends that, that you've seen? Or that have... I think that the... So if I think about my mum's generation, all that they were exposed to in terms of female bodies were very, very slim women on magazines, right? So in magazines, in books, on the TV sometimes, but it was very much the thin ideal. So the thinner, the better at all costs. There's no such thing as too thin. Kate Moss generation of like, then sort of a bit later, Kate Moss generation of nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. These are all the messages. Funnily enough, I had a conversation with my friend this morning about the sidebar of shame, which was basically pictures of, this is in, more in the 90s, of like Jennifer Lopez with a tiny bit of cellulite on the beach circled saying sidebar of shame in the Daily Mail. In women's magazines, it was all about the thinner, the better. And anyone seen to be carrying any additional weight was shamed circle around the bit that they were saying was not good, all that kind of stuff. And then of course, when women did lose too much weight, they were told they were too skinny and everything was awful and there's something wrong with them but they've just been shamed into it. And then we had the social media and we had Instagram. So if we think about Instagram coming in something like 11 years ago, now young women are exposed to all sorts of different shapes and sizes of bodies now, but the the body shape that we're told that we have to have now is this kind of tiny waist, massive bum, big boobs, but you have to have a thigh gap and you have to be able to fit your fingers around, hands around your waist. And, <laughs> and you have to do this and you have to have visible abs and everything else. And a lot of that stuff is obviously, not necessarily, obviously, it's physiologically impossible unless you've had surgery, right? So if you're doing loads of squats, unless you have a very specific pelvic shape, if you're doing loads and loads of squats, you're gonna build up your inner thigh muscles as well. So you end up without a thigh gap, but you might have a big bum, but you've not got a thigh gap that you wanted. So you keep working, you keep trying, you think I'm not losing enough weight, I'm not doing it right. But actually those people that you're looking at are either posing in a very unnatural way or they've had surgery or they're editing their pictures. So we're now exposed to this kind of, and, and you know, even like the Kardashians lead a lot of this body, uh, body image stuff, in my opinion, and in everyone else's opinion. <laughs> now they're going very skinny and that's really hard because people, women have maybe eaten a bit extra to try and bulk up and maybe they've had this surgery to make their bum bigger and now the Kardashians are getting really skinny and they're like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Have my bum implants taken out? How am I supposed to manage this, right? So social media has caused this absolute chaos with body image and with diet culture. And just like, it's some interesting examples of this. Like nobody in the world told, like from a nutrition professional perspective, told people to start drinking plant milk. That was almost entirely led by like a social media campaign of people saying you shouldn't be drinking dairy. And then plant milk has come along and taken up that space. 
nobody in a nutrition professional perspective has said that's better for you in any capacity than drinking dairy milk because it's not fundamentally dairy's got loads of really important nutrients in that are harder to find elsewhere in your diet but somebody came along and i could name her but you might want to edit it out deliciously ella came along and said oh, everyone should be plant-based and not drink dairy and now there's this huge market for plant-based milks right at that time so we're talking about this kind of 11 year ago uh, no nutrition qualifications by the way 11 years ago, along comes Joe Wicks and tells everyone to eat coconut oil. Coconut oil is full of saturated fat. And we worked so hard as nutrition professionals to get people away from saturated fat and to have more olive oil. And now suddenly everyone's eating loads of coconut oil because Joe Wicks told them to. Again, no nutrition qualifications. Absolutely no health benefits to eating coconut oil. But these nutrition trends seep into society uh, from influencers and from social media platforms and it, it causes physical harm so if we get a wave and you know lots of people would say it's inevitable that we have a wave of young women and men who have osteoporosis in their 40s because they never gained the bone density that you get from having dairy in your diet consistently up until the age of 30 is deliciously ella <laughs> is deliciously ella or other influencers culpable for that are they responsible i think so but no one's going to, they're not, they've not got any governing body that says that they should be. Mm. Equally, if we did have a big spike in heart attacks from people having loads of coconut oil, is Joe Wicks responsible? Maybe, but he's not culpable because he's not, he's not got any credentials in the area. There's no one governing what he's saying. There's like social media has become a public health platform, but nobody is managing it. Nobody's protecting it. No one's making sure it's okay. Skinny teas, giving people diarrhea, teaching people purging behaviors, like, it's a mess <laughs> and it's so hard to break through that stuff. And I think dietitians have such an important voice there, but it is really hard to break through. And that is where now diet culture is like on acid and it's so dangerous for people. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I did, I've done two DEXA scans in the last uh, sort of 12 months. First was in June, then was in December. And the one in June showed me that I was like 24% body fat or something which was a real shock to my system because I just kind of assumed I was like 17, 18% or something just based on how I think I look. Um, and the guy who did the scan uh, was like, yeah, you know, in terms of in terms of your upper body, you're sort of median for people, the sorts of people that have DEXA scans, i.e. generally more health conscious type people. For your lower body, you're in the 15th percentile. So do more squats kind of thing. Um, but also I had tons of visceral adipose tissue. It was like 70 something. And then I had another scan six months later, uh, I'd lost three kg. Annoyingly, like 60% of it was muscle rather than fat. Um, and the guy was like, yeah, it's because not enough protein and not enough actually going to the gym, which is what maintains muscle when, you, when you've lost weight. The visceral adipose tissue went down to sort of the 50s from the 70s, which was good. Um, body fat was still like 23%. Um, and so I was thinking, part of me was thinking, I want to get shredded um, just for the aesthetic stuff. But then another part of me, well, when I when I spoke to this other health coach, he was like, "Well, it's not it's not really about the six pack abs, but actually we do want to get this visceral adipose tissue down, and especially with my background, South Asian, basically, apparently a lot of fat congregates around our bellies, um, and visceral adipose tissue equals bad. Therefore, I should try and reduce my overall body fat because that gets rid of some of the visceral adipose tissue. Mm -hmm. To what extent is this?" reasonable strategy or what have I gotten wrong in this analysis? No, no, I mean, yeah. all of what you've said is true. So vi visceral fat, which is the fat that collects around your organs, is really not good for our general health. It's very metabolically active and interacting with our body. It creates inflammation in the body, which we know to be really negative for us. So visceral fat is something we need to control. How much visceral fat you have is inevitably going to be linked to your genetics. So you will always have more than perhaps. So when we do these studies, the DEXA studies to show what's average are mainly done on white people. 
And so we don't necessarily have a good gauge of what might that might look like in South Asian people, for example, what might be normal. So actually, if you did compare that, and BMI is the same, actually. So we give a lower BMI and waist to hip ratio for South Asian people now than we would for white people because South Asian people uh, carry more weight centrally. And that's, so you might be lighter, but you might carry more weight centrally and that's more dangerous. So actually, if we looked at studies that include people from all different backgrounds, there might be a slightly different ratio for you of what would be normal right because of your background so that's something to think about I don't believe that data exists but I could be wrong um so it's something to do with thinking practically about what's right for you and whether you can physically do that but focusing on something like visceral fat is is a useful measure of thinking okay how am I gonna improve and and impact my long-term health unfortunately most people are only interested in aesthetics to the detriment of all the other things and then that can end up with all kinds of different problems so you could get really really fixated on that number and actually it's not moving as fast as you want it to. And that can be really difficult for you because you can end up in a bit of a pit of going to the gym twice a day and hardly eating anything or just eating protein and go down this spiral. Whereas actually just having a, a gauge on it, having an eye on it and making sure it's not becoming out of control and in a really unhealthy level is probably the most important thing to think about. How do you feel about the visible abs culture? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's, unfortunately, I think it's much more dangerous for women than it is for men. So that's not fair. I think that... There's this culture now for men, and I really feel sad that women haven't brought men with them on the body positivity journey, because I think that the like diet culture journey is really just in its infancy for men, really. But what I notice is if you watch Netflix, for example, you'll see men who don't apparently go, you might follow this man all through his day and he's doing all sorts of different things, but not once has he gone to the gym, but when he takes his shirt off in the evening, he's got this absolutely ripped six pack. So <laughs> young men are like... Oh, he's not really going to the gym, but somehow he looked like every man has this under their, even lawyers who are clearly working like 24 hours a day seem to have this amazing six pack. How is that possible? How do I get that? I should have that too. And of course that's not how it is, right? That's just not what the average man looks like, but that's what men are now expected to kind of try and emulate or feel that they're expected to try and emulate. And you know, the lower your body fat percentage goes, the lower your testosterone gets, the more higher risk you are of injury and generally your energy is going to be crap. If you speak to people who are men who've been on the front covers of like uh, men's health and stuff like that, and you ask them how they were feeling at the time that they shredded down for that photo shoot, they'll tell you that they felt horrendous, that they were depressed, they felt awful, they hadn't eaten out in ages, hadn't eaten with their wife for ages, hadn't seen their kids for ages because they're just in the gym all the time. You know, that, and they've not drunk enough water, they've like fasted from water to try and get really shredded. But that's kind of the you know, the panacea, that's what people are aiming for, right? That's what people think they need to be looking like. So that's dangerous and toxic in and of itself. When we think of women, actually having visible abs for most women means getting your body fat percentage down to something that we relatively similar to men. So something below like 19%, let's say. But in order for a woman, most women, this is on average looking at the data, most women need a body fat percentage of at least 22 to 25 to have a regular menstrual cycle. So women are starving themselves down to body fat percentage of somewhere between 17 and 19 to get visible abs, meaning that their menstrual cycle has probably stopped on average, if we look at it. And of course, some women carry a lot more weight on the bottom and not so much in the middle. So they might have leaner abdomens naturally. But on average, when we look at the data, most women with a six pack probably won't be menstruating. And of course, not having a period is associated with all kinds of really negative health outcomes, not least of all, uh, you know, bone density problems and all sorts of things that are actually long-term health things that can cause all kinds of harm. One of the questions that people love to ask, I think, in media type stuff I've seen, and so I'm, I'm going to ask it to you with that caveat, with with, with the apology, but uh, is, can you be overweight and healthy? 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So some people just are naturally supposed to be heavier than what the BMI tells us to be. And in my practice, I would say that those are the people who were noticed that they were heavier as children. And maybe they carry a bit more weight on their lower body or on their arms. Maybe they're women who've got quite big breasts, that kind of stuff. They generally just are naturally heavier. Maybe their mum's also a bit heavier and or their grandma and their grandma was a bit heavier. That kind of genetic predisposition to carrying a bit more weight. But what I'm talking about is women who eat really well, who look after their bodies, who exercise, who love exercise, who are doing really good stuff and who look after their mental health and they're not eating compulsively. They don't feel out of control with their relationship with food. They're eating really healthily, but ultimately they are still heavier than what their doctor might like them to be, right? And those are healthy people. Those are overweight but healthy people. And what we have is this interesting data around people who are thin on the inside but fat on the outside, TOFI and foti people who are fat on the outside but thin on the inside what does that mean so <laughs> thin you could be thin on the outside but fat on the inside like with this visceral fat we're talking yeah. about so you could be a naturally very thin person but maybe you're smoking maybe you're drinking too much maybe you you know don't eat well don't look after you like you never exercise so you might look thin so your doctor goes sure you can have ivf you can have all this treatment you can do these things but you're actually a very very unhealthy person and just some small lifestyle changes might sort everything out for you but you could be an overweight person overweight in inverted commas who looks after their body everything beautifully doesn't have hardly any visceral fat but they are naturally a heavier set person and they're denied treatment for things like infertility and that kind of stuff because their bmi isn't what the gp wants it to be so it's a big kettle of fish and it's very difficult but yes you can absolutely be heavier than the society would like you to be and be a very healthy person i've i've heard on a couple of usually um kind of men-centric podcasts um this idea of and usually right-wingy type podcast that oh my god woke culture has gone mad you look at that plus-sized model on that yeah. on that instagram page look at that plus-sized model on that magazine cover yes we get that like body shaming bad yes we get that like super super skinny also bad but like come on surely you're encouraging women to become fat that's sure. the, that kind of narrative what, what, yeah, what do you think i mean that? the when we think about um, my, my mum's generation again, where they only saw very, very skinny women, and certainly to the early stages of social media where we only saw a very particular shape and size of women, and we still see that on TV on average and everything else. When we see that, we don't see any other body shapes and sizes represented. It means that the women who can never be that shape and size, despite however much exercise and, and healthy eating, whatever else they do, they just feel completely unrepresented. And those people who, you know, you might follow the latest diet trends, every new one that comes out, but it's not working for you because you're just never supposed to be that shape and size. It's not healthy for you. It's impossible for you to maintain, get there or maintain it. So you either develop an eating disorder or you develop what we call disordered eating, where you're feeling terrible about your body shape and size all the time. You're bouncing from you know, either completely restricting or overeating all the time and struggling to maintain your, a healthy relationship with food. You're constantly thinking about food. It's the only thing you're ever thinking about. You're hating your body and thinking about food all the time, occupying all of your brain space. Imagine what you could do with all that brain space if it stopped. Um, when we don't have any representation, that's the two camps that people fall into. So they either stay super, super skinny or they really struggle with disordered eating relationship with food in their body. What we need is this representation. And of course, we don't need any glorification of poor health. But what I see from these girls that are, you know, these plus size models who are on the cover of Cosmopolitan, if you look on their Instagram, they're skipping, they're doing yoga, they're doing amazing things, they're doing incredible stuff. They're not generally, the, the people who are shown are not the people who are on YouTube eating excessively and everything else, right? Those are, that's a really niche kind of fetishy category, actually. But I think that these heavier women who are naturally heavier and are plus size models are being grouped in with them. And that's certainly not how it is in reality. 
All right, so we took a little bit of a, a tea break. I did the thing that you that, that you suggested while I while while I was waiting for the tea to steep or brew or whatever the hell that's called. I poured myself a glass of water and I drank it. Perfect. And that's such an easy thing. It's yeah. so nice when you can like attach a habit to something else. Definitely, so I think that's, that's good, where yeah. dietitians come in really handy because we understand like if you see a different sort of nutrition professional, sometimes you're given this like idealized diet of the perfect things you should be eating and drinking. And it's just completely unrealistic. Whereas because we work in hospitals with people who just don't have access to funds and stuff like that for the majority of our career, you kind of understand what people actually eat like and how they really behave. And you can really help people to kind of change those behaviors rather than just going, here's your diet plan, off you go. Yeah. Um, uh, on, on that note, are there any other sort of quick, easy tips that someone can can take away? that will just level up their life. <laughs> I think like snacking on nuts and seeds and stuff like that is just so helpful. Just okay. add in, add things in, put like a jar, like a, if you're someone who eats in the car and you notice you un- eat unhealthy things in the car, put like a jar of trail mix in the car. Okay. Go to a health food store or wherever you can afford to. You can go to um, Poundland and get loads of different nuts and seeds and stuff and mix them up in a big jar and put that in your car and it will help you to kind of keep full for ages and have nice things to snack on. Interesting. So I've always thought like, I really like nuts, but then I think, oh, nuts, high calorie, bad. So <laughs> interestingly, there's great data to show that the less you chew nuts, the less nutrition, like the less fat you absorb from them. So don't choke, but if you- <laughs> Swallow them. <laughs> yeah, swallow them whole. Um, you just can't act, they're very difficult to digest in a really positive way. So ultimately, the if you eat nuts, you just don't, you probably absorb 50% of the fat from the nuts that you actually eat because most of us aren't chewing it down. If you have peanut butter, for example- then you end up absorbing much more of the fat because obviously it's processed and you can eat it better. Yeah, because like w- w- when I'm driving, especially, I'll, I'll I'll stop at a services, charge the car or whatever, and then I'll be like, oh, I really want to eat something. Yeah, and I'll sometimes default to like Smarties, but like I think replacing that with like just a nut mix option. Yeah, perfect. Would be nice. Yeah, yeah, and even put some like put a few chocolate raisins in there. Why yeah. not? Treat yourself. You know, nice. make it nice. Okay. <laughs> so the water thing, the, the, the nut thing. Nut things. I mean, nuts are so great for your microbiome, but they're also great for keep, like general healthy fats, and they're also super positive, keeping you full and all that kind of stuff. So really good for satiety. I think it is a little bit about counting your fruits and veg. So just going, all right, how many plants have I got in this meal? How many plants have I got in that meal? And one of the things that I do habitually is just to, as I said before, just zoom out on my diet a little bit and go, okay, I haven't really had any fish this week. I'm in a restaurant, I'm trying to make a decision. Have I eaten chicken this week? Have I eaten fish? Have I eaten meat? What have I had? For me, I'm also thinking, where am I in my menstrual cycle? Do I need some red meat? Do I need a bit more iron? That kind of stuff. It's just sort of trying to think a little bit more strategically about your diet without having really strict rules because that's important and helps you with your general mental health and well-being. Nice. I like that. Yeah, I find often when I go to a restaurant, I'm paralyzed by choice. But if I zoom out and think, huh, I've only had one portion of fish this week. Great. That makes, Perfect. that's that's easy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, you looked up a few studies while we were taking taking a break. Let's pretend I just knew them off the top of my head though, yeah? Nice. <laughs> I am joking. You can keep that, you can keep that in. <laughs> yeah. So um, what are some fun studies that you, I, I, I love hearing about studies. <laughs> yeah. So there's some great research on probiotics and both the gut brain axis. So how when we're stressed, we have these gut symptoms and how probiotics can help to control those gut symptoms. So one in particular, so there's 55 healthy volunteers given a probiotic, another group are given uh, a placebo so we can measure the difference. The ones who have the probiotic have a significant reduction of psychological stress, significant reduction in cortisol. So these like chemical parameters of stress and anxiety that we can measure. So it's not just how people say they're feeling, it's these objective measures. So I'm talking about cerebiome, which is these two combination of two particular probiotic bacteria, which we have in the smart probiotic, shown to significantly reduce cortisol in people who are taking it in comparison to placebo magic. People don't believe this stuff until they see some of this research, right? It's so important to look at it. And they also see a decrease in depression scores. So people's perceived how they're feeling, mood scores, that kind of stuff, which is pretty magic. I think 
One of the really important things that we often miss when we're thinking about productivity and focus and concentration is that anxiety is like the anti-focus concentration hormone, right? When you're anxious, you generally procrastinate, you don't want to do anything, you get really fidgety, so you can't concentrate on anything at all. So really, with a lens of thinking about why we struggle with focus and concentration, we've got to think about anxiety. So if we can reduce anxiety and reduce cortisol, we're going to be in a much better flow state, we're going to be able to focus much better. So if we're focusing our, our thoughts about this on reducing of cortisol, we can think that then the counteraction of that will be that you'll be able to concentrate and focus much better. We've also done some great there's great research on depressed patients given probiotics and seeing improvement in anxiety, sleep quality, stress. And that in that study in particular, they were given the probiotic for eight weeks and those results lasted for eight weeks longer once they stopped taking the probiotic, which is pretty magic. So your gut bacteria adapt and change over time and then they can become a less stressed microbiome. So your ecosystem in your colon sort of evolves with you. So it evolves depending on what you feed it and it evolves depending on what external factors going on. So if there is a lot of stress, you become a more stressed ecosystem, including your colon, and that then helps to release more cortisol, makes you a more stressed person. So it's this feedback loop between your gut and your environment. Whereas if we can break that feedback loop by introducing some probiotic bacteria that help to control stress, it can help to have long lasting effects in your colon, which is magic. And then we've got another great study with 75 healthy volunteers given placebo or probiotics. And again, really significant reduction in stress-induced GI symptoms. So that diarrhea that you get when you're feeling anxious and stressed, we can see that reduce just with taking these two particular strains of probiotics, which is pretty magic. That's really cool. Sick. <laughs> I'm going to take this more, more regularly now. Yeah, every day, please. Cut that out because... <laughs> <laughs> One thing that is common for people to hear if they go to a doctor about some any kind of bowel symptoms is, oh, you've got a bit of IBS. Yeah, sure. What does a bit of IBS mean? N nothing, really. <laughs> I think it's really important that everyone knows that if a doctor is trying to give you a diagnosis of IBS, diagnosis of IBS is a diagnosis of elimination. So your job as a doctor is to eliminate all the other things that it could be before you say it's IBS. So that means that at the very least, someone should be having a blood test to rule out any sort of inflammatory condition. And they should be having a stool test, again, to look at inflammation in the stool, but also to look for any blood in the stool, which is associated with bowel cancers. And unfortunately, bowel cancer is affecting more and more young people we also, with women, we would think about things like endometriosis and other gynecological problems that could cause disruption to digestion, but also bloating and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, cervical cancers can lead to bloating, those sorts of things. So it's so, so important that your doctor does that process of elimination before they give you that diagnosis of IBS. And I think it can be quite empowering for people to know that actually the NICE guidelines, so that the guidelines that tell doctors what to do, that is in there. They have to do this process of elimination before they say it's just a bit of IBS, because there is a risk that you'll miss other much more serious things. And a lot of my patients will have seen their doctor multiple times before they see me and then they come and they say my doctor said I've got IBS and then I say actually I just think we need to do a few more tests I don't think this has been ruled out and they end up having something more serious and that's you know it could, could have been diagnosed years ago. Mm. What can we learn about gut from poo testing and blood testing? So stool testing at your GP so if someone comes to see me and I think I think we need some more stool tests the sorts of stool tests I might ask for would be things like um a, it's called a fecal calprotectin so it measures how much inflammation is in your poo and that tells us if there's actual inflammation in your bowel someone who has IBS should never have inflammation in their bowel it's just not part of the IBS picture but people who have inflammatory bowel disease for example may well have well, will have inflammation in their bowel itself when they're in have active disease um 
We can also look for things like parasites. So sometimes people come and they've got like IBS that developed when they went on holiday somewhere and actually they've got some residual giardia or another parasite that they've picked up, that kind of thing. We can also look for things like H. pylori, which is a particular type of bug that lives in your stomach lining and that can cause reflux and those kinds of things. And it's again, a simple stool test that can be done for that. So there are lots of medical level stool tests we can do. We can check your pancreatic function with your stool test, that kind of thing. But the sort of stool tests that people are really interested in now are these microbiome tests that you can have done. So these are available commercially and they are interesting. So in the last week, I've been analyzing a load of stool tests as part of the Heights probiotic trial and we're looking at people's stool tests, but there's real limitations to them. So we've got really interesting raw data and what we need to do with that data is pair it up with what people are eating, what their lifestyle's like, try to use the clues from their clinical conversation with them to then look at their stool test and try and match up why this particular thing is different for them. So for example, you could look and you could say, oh, this person's got more higher levels of some pathogenic bacteria and you need to say, did you have food poisoning any time in the last kind of few years or so? And then we can go, okay, that's probably why. But it might also just be a bit high because their levels of good bacteria are a bit too low and we need to balance it all out. So it's all about ratios. And I guess the main thing to take from this is that if you're going to do it on your own, the chances are you're going to end up with a load of information that you don't know what to do with. And it can be potentially really frightening. And if you have existing gastrointestinal problems, the more anxious and, and worried you are, the worse your problems are going to be, right? So it's not necessarily helpful to do it if you are someone who is feeling anxious and you think that might be contributing to your gut symptoms. Ultimately, there's really no point in doing it if you're someone who lives with any kind of gut condition, because we just don't have data for what is normal for someone who has IBS, for example. So we've got loads of data for what's normal in healthy people or what's average in healthy people, but we don't have data on people who've got IBS, IBD, that kind of stuff. So it's just not a good idea to do it if you've got any kind of gut symptoms. And actually, if you come and see someone like myself or someone from my team, we can, based on your symptoms and what's going on for you, have a really good guess at what's going on bacteria-wise, right? So if you say to me, I'm passing really foul-smelling gas, I'll say, what does it smell like? And they might say it smells really eggy. And I'll say, yeah, you've got too many of the ones that produce too much sulfur. Let's work on managing those. And if you say I've got really bad bloating, I'll say, well, we've probably just got really loads of rapid fermenting bacteria in there. And we can try and modulate the proportions of those so that things get a bit more comfortable. So it's you really don't need to have one ever. But sort of academically speaking, they're always quite fascinating. Mm. So I was in Miami a couple of days ago and everyone there seemed to have some kind of longevity regimen with sure. their NADs and NMNs and all their stacks and all this kind of stuff. And one thing that they all well, sauna use, cold showers, ice plungers, hyperbaric chambers, even some of them. One thing that they all seem to have done was some kind, I think this sort of microbiome stool testing because yeah. they were mm -hmm. like, oh, I did my stool test and it told me that actually for me, avocados are really bad. And for my mate, avocados are good. Like what? Sure. I, and I was a bit like, what? How, yeah. how, how does that work? What's, what's going on there? I think that what they are referring to is um, some personalized nutrition program that does stool testing, but also does blood testing and genetic testing. Yeah, yeah. They did so they're that looking at that full yeah. parameters of things. And whilst that's interesting, ultimately the, the vast majority of the advice, both on microbiome testing, but also on genetic testing and everything else, is going to be roughly the same, right? Roughly the same, which means that, you, you've got a slightly higher propensity to me for cardiovascular disease, for example, and I have a slightly higher propensity for diabetes, but the dietary advice for those two things is going to be the same. <laughs> Eat loads of plants, have some oily fish, be careful with high fat foods, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So the dietary advice is going to be roughly the same regardless of what's going on. And some people might find out from that kind of stuff that they don't handle fats very well. So they might find out that actually for them, avocado, too much avocado isn't a good thing, but most people aren't out there smashing so much avocado that it's going to have a <laughs> negative impact on their health. Right. So 
ultimately those tests are interesting and some people find them useful but in in practice for most people it creates this kind of real anxiety and that's where people can end up booing bananas in a in a lecture theater right that's where people get too fixated on it and worried about things that actually in the grand scheme of things are not something you need to be worrying about yeah. These are generally just, sorry to interrupt Please. you, these are generally people with far too much time on their hands to think about their longevity and they're not people who are living in the real world, but their influence is huge on all of us, right? Because they are the sort of top tier in terms of uh, financials. And so we kind of emulate them and we think that that's part of what got them to where they are. But actually it's the years of them grafting and eating delivery every night that got them to where they are. It's not <laughs> them focusing on hyperbaric chambers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, these guys all have way too much money. <laughs> way too much money and way too much time on their hands. Um, I was having a chat with my girlfriend last night and we were we were talking about sauna use because there's all this stuff around like, oh, heat shock proteins and heat shock therapy and all that, all that kind of stuff. And I was thinking, yeah, you know, you know, they say like on, on Huberman Lab, he says four times a day and we couldn't quite remember how, like whether, whether, whether it was 13 minutes or 14 minutes or 15 minutes. And she made a very good point. She was like, well, if you don't go to the sauna at all. It does not matter at all like whether <laughs> yeah. whether you're whether you're fifty five minutes fifty eight minutes. Just try and like get to the sauna at least once a week first, and then once you're at the point where you're going four times a week, then worry about the optimization. Yeah, sure. I mean, also <laughs> just remember that like ninety nine percent of the population don't have access to a sauna, so and they're kind of okay. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, I think it illustrates that thing, which like I I definitely have a propensity for this where. If I don't have 100% of the information, I'm going to go 0% of the way. Sure, sure. And actually, I should just go 80% of the way and then worry about optimizing the final yeah, 20%. Yeah, and I think that's just generally really yeah. good advice, isn't it? It's like those small steps that you take are the things that last and that are easy. And if you try and sort of have it stack, that makes a massive difference rather than trying to overhaul everything and get too details-oriented. Nice. Um, okay, loads of somewhat unrelated things, which are all, I mean, obviously related to the gut that I want to ask you about. So I'm just going to shoot a mm-hmm. bunch of questions your way. Uh, what's the deal with protein shakes? Uh, It depends on how you're taking them, what you're using them for, but most people don't need them. So most people get plenty of protein in their diet. If you're someone who is trying to build muscle rapidly and you're busy and it's difficult to get enough kind of meals in the day, then fair enough, you could use a protein shake. But it's really important to look for one that doesn't have emulsifiers and colorings and all this stuff in it, preservatives, because you're just causing yourself more problems for later. They've got these health halo that we talked about that people think it's really healthy because it's a protein shake when actually it's probably like birthday cake flavored and it's got loads of different (laughs) things in it that you don't want in your body. So I generally recommend people to either use a whey protein isolate or a pea protein isolate if they're vegan. And then you can blend that up with like some berries and maybe some kefir or some berries and some like oats, for example. And you can make yourself like a really healthy, really good tasting protein shake that's still got the same protein structures in it, the thing that you really need for muscle building, but it's not going to have any lactose in it. It's not going to have any other additives in it and the things you're trying to avoid. Nice. Um, Any particular brands that you recommend? Depends on how bougie people are. (laughs) So um, the organic protein company have a really great uh, whey protein isolate with literally nothing else in it. Uh, So no emulsifiers or anything else. So that's a really good choice. Nice. But it's expensive. Okay, here's another thing I've heard. Uh, Blending veg is bad because you lose a lot of the benefits of veg once it's in a blender. Sure. So when we uh, blend anything, it's kind of a step towards processing it, right? But so is cooking and so is other things that we do that are fine for us. Um, We do lose some of the fiber structure, but we maintain all the nutrients. So if you're talking about kind of uh, putting it in a blender and you have all of it, it's slightly different to if you're juicing something, you lose all the fiber if you're juicing something. But if you're just blending it, you maintain a lot of the the food that your gut bacteria want. So you're still getting loads of good stuff from that. And 
there's no harm in doing it. The harm, well, not harm, but the problem that people run into is a bit like when we're talking about oranges and juicing, you can end up having way more fruit than you would normally have or be able to physically eat in a sitting, but blend it up, you can just drink it super easily. So what I usually recommend people do is add some like spinach in there, add some kale in there, bulk it out with some veggies and balance that out with some fruit so that it's kind of a bit more of a balance between fruits and vegetables. Mm. All right, I'm going to try and find a decent recipe for this stuff. So like <laughs> I can put some oats, put some uh, organic whatever protein powder, some fro- frozen berries, some frozen veg. Yeah, chuck stick it some seeds thing. in, stick some peanut, like some mixed nut butter would be great in oh, there. Yes, <laughs> fantastic. Um, on the note of juices and blending and stuff, what's the deal with juice cleanses and like celery juice and like this kind of stuff that people do? I mean, it's an absolutely terrible idea, all of it. So I've got a very good friend, Dr. Rachel Kent, who is, um, she's an amazing researcher at King's College and she, her sort of journey, she, she researches the impact of health tech on our general well-being and, and lives. And she started that journey into doing that because she did a juice cleanse. She was just doing it for general health, she didn't want to lose weight, but she just read that juicing was a really good idea. She cut everything out, she's doing like a bit of a detox type thing in inverted commas and ended up in hospital with terrible kidney stones. It was an intensive care with sepsis and everything because she'd followed this guy's juicing advice that she'd seen online and realized that this was a disaster. And now she does amazing research into the impact of like calorie tracking and that kind of stuff on your general life. Uh, So juice cleanses are dangerous and worrying and something that we definitely shouldn't be doing. Anything that kind of uh, involves let's say the word detoxing it's just nonsense so if you do something like a juice cleanse you're actually depriving your body of loads of really really important nutrients meaning it's got to work much much harder and in that process of your body working much harder it's releasing more things that we might consider to be toxic like oxidative stress and that kind of stuff because you're just not allowing your body to work in its normal way you're making your liver work really hard you're making your kidneys work really hard and that means that you're producing more stress in your body which is actually physically harmful to you so I don't have a problem with people having a juice as part of their you know adding a few more vitamins into their diet and stuff like that fine but if you're doing like a juice cleanse or detox really bad news terrible health consequences for lots of people and absolutely no health benefits nice um there seems to be a lot of advice on TikTok these days about the gut, gut talk. Mm. What's your what's your view on gut talk? I mean, I've not seen any good advice on gut talk apart from what me and the girls from the TV show have been trying to produce. There's some really terrible stuff on there, including, you know, I think they call it like a cheer shower, internal shower, that kind of stuff where people are trying to flush themselves out of things. And it's a terrible breeding ground for, you know, a bit like Instagram is a terrible breeding ground for terrible advice that can cause all kinds of trouble. What's uh, What's going on with colonic cleanses and colonic irrigation as like a health fad? Yeah, like a really bad idea. So if we take colonic irrigation as an example, most people who are going for colonic irrigation will be going because they have some kind of digestive problem that they're worried about. So it might be that they're just feeling a bit bloated or it might be that they've got a bit of diarrhea or constipation. So they're going to a beauty salon effectively to have colonic irrigation. And what happens in that is they pass a tube up your bottom and then introduce a lot of water into the bowel. And that essentially kind of flushes out all of the whatever's in your colon. Your colon's a meter and a half long, right? It's a big organ. And so actually it's got a lot of stuff in there that's supposed to be in there, stuff that's feeding your microbiome, bits of it that actually are your microbiome that you want to keep in there, they're really important. Um, But also if you've got any gut symptoms and then you fill your colon with loads of water and put it under pressure, you're at risk of perforation, right? Because the person who's a beauty person who does your colonic irrigation doesn't know, doesn't have these skills to find out whether actually you've got a bowel cancer or you've got something structurally wrong with your bowel that is causing those symptoms. Maybe your GP doesn't even have the skills to do that. You might have diverticular disease where the structure is affected and there's narrowings and there's like 
bits of the bowel wall that are really vulnerable, introduce a load of water into that environment, put it under pressure, perforations can happen really easily. There's absolutely no health benefits to colonic irrigation, but loads of reasons that everybody should absolutely avoid it. Fantastic. Um, A lot of people seem to be going on gluten-free diets these days. What's the deal with gluten-free diets? Yeah, super trendy, right? So about 1% of the UK population has celiac disease. So that's where gluten is physically toxic to your bowel wall. So it causes physical damage to the lining of the bowel wall. And that's an autoimmune condition. So it's a generally inherited autoimmune condition. So in their case, gluten should absolutely be avoided at all costs, including like a tiny crumb of gluten that could be on a chopping board or in the same fryer. So, you know, frying chips and they've got had batter in there, then they can't have chips that are fried in the same thing. So those people have to be super, super careful with gluten. The rate of celiac disease hasn't increased over the last few years at all, but the number of people on a gluten-free diet has increased exponentially thanks to people like Gwyneth Paltrow and other people who are promoting gluten-free diets as as some sort of health elixir. Of course, in reality, that's just a low-carb diet through the back back door, right? So people are like, I've lost loads of weight on a gluten-free diet. It's just because you're not eating carbs anymore. That's the reason you've lost weight. It's not good for you. It's not helping you. Gluten is this tiny little protein molecule that never did anyone any harm apart from this 1% of the population, but it's been completely demonized by the kind of wellness community. And this sort of has pros and cons for the celiac community because now everywhere you go you can get really good celiac products and gluten-free products right which is great when I first started working as a dietitian gluten-free bread was horrendous and you couldn't buy gluten-free cake anywhere and now everywhere you go has gluten-free options but it's also made shop owners like restaurants that kind of thing less worried about it so people think you're just on a gluten-free diet because you're being fussy as opposed to having a true allergy so they're not necessarily handling things carefully or doing it because it's someone who's got celiac disease they're doing it because it's someone that they think is just on a fad diet which causes all kinds of trouble for people who do live with celiac disease so there are pros and cons to that we see that in other allergies as well so like there's a, a couple of instances of like vegan food trucks giving people dairy with dairy allergies anaphylaxis because they're just not being that careful because they're just being, they're trying to be vegan, but they're not careful with contamination. So people who have an anaphylactic dairy allergy think it's fine, but actually it's not. So there's all kinds of trouble with that. But ultimately, again, no benefits to cutting out gluten, loads of downsides, including things like affecting quality of life. So cutting out gluten is not a good idea for anyone and not necessary unless you have celiac disease or some people with IBS do struggle with tolerating gluten. But it's usually not just gluten. So what I find is people have cut out gluten. They're like, well, I felt a bit better, but it wasn't altogether better. And that's because there's lots of other things that impact symptoms and IBS that we can do as a clinical treatment diet. So would you suggest like, would it be worth a random person just cutting out gluten for a week and seeing seeing what happens? Or is that like too much of a N equals one bro science? Yeah, of? I mean, not unless they have any <laughs> symptoms, not unless they like massively suspect that gluten is causing the problems. And again, you know, if you have some gut symptoms and you cut out gluten, you might feel a bit better and then you might start to feel worse again. But the chances are it's not because it was the gluten in the first place. It's because you changed your diet completely. So people might cut out gluten and then they don't eat the burger and they don't eat the pizza and they don't eat the other things. So they feel better, but actually it's not because they cut out gluten. It's because they're not eating processed food in the same way. We talked a little. We, we we touched a little bit earlier on dairy and kind of dairy is bad and replacing milk with oat milk, almond milk, soy milk, all that jazz. Um, what I guess what's the health side of things? And I guess some people have an, a sort of an aversion to dairy for the kind of animal cruelty side of things. So how do you? balance kind of these things? Yeah, I think it's really important to recognize there are lots of different reasons for coming off dairy, for being a vegan, whatever it might be. And if those are ethical or they are environmental or they are for uh, reasons of religion, for example, then obviously that's absolutely the right thing for you to do. And I would never want anyone to listen to this and think that I'm saying that you have to drink milk if it's really incongruous with your 
ethical beliefs or your religious beliefs for that matter, because obviously that would make you feel really unhappy and uncomfortable and that's not the right thing for anyone to do. But if you're doing it for health reasons, there's absolutely no data to show that plant milks are better for you as a human than dairy milk. And in fact, all the data that we have to date shows that people who don't consume dairy have much poorer bone health. So the people who are vegans have a much higher instance of bone fracture than people who are not vegans. We have this really interesting period in our lives. So up until the age of 30, we can continue to mineralize our bones. So all the minerals we take in in our diet can be soaked into our bones up until the age of 30. We call that our peak bone density. After the age of 30, it's basically downhill from there. And your bones then act as like a mineral store for your body for the rest of your life. So within our bodies, we always have to maintain a really careful band of how much calcium and how much magnesium and how much other minerals we have in our body because they're essential for the contraction of our heart and the movement of our lungs and everything else. So our blood minerals will always be the same and our body will either take those minerals from the foods that we're eating or it'll leach them from our bones in order to make sure we maintain that really tight level of mineral control in our bloodstream, right? So you could spend all of your early 20s, teens not having enough dairy in your diet because someone on the internet told you to not to have it because it's not good for you or because of something you've seen and that makes you feel uncomfortable, but you never reach your peak bone mass. And then every day after that, you're just depleting your stores. And so by the time you're 40, your bones could be really brittle. And we see this in children. So even if children who have, have to have an, uh, even children have to have a dairy-free diet because of dairy allergy, they'll never have as strong bones or be as tall as children who consume dairy as they're growing up. So it has a direct impact on our bone health. And people say to me, well, people in China don't eat dairy and they're fine, but they eat like broth with bones in it. So they're constantly having different things in their diet that contain loads of calcium. We're talking about a Western diet type population where we just don't have other good sources of, of bones, of calcium in our diet. And the matrix of, of minerals in dairy is really, really important for our bone health. But it's also one of our main dairies has been historically and still continues to be one of our main sources of iodine. And iodine has an impact on your thyroid function. And we're seeing loads and loads of young people coming through with iodine deficiency and thyroid problems because they've cut out dairy. And again, I'm going to say it again, the influencers who told you to don't have any, like, there's no consequences for them on that. You can, it, low iodine can cause infertility. No one's got any, like, no one can come back on people that told them to do that. So dairy is a very useful food to consume in your diet. And if you have cut it out because you think it's healthier for you, you've been misled. If you've cut it out because you've watched documentaries about hormones in cow's milk as well, you've been misled in the UK because we have very different and very careful farming practices in the UK in, compar in comparison to America where those documentaries are made. Um, so let's say someone is vegan for ethical reasons. Mm -hmm. What can they do to uh, minimize the negative impact of not having dairy? Great question. So what they really need to be focusing on is making sure that all of their plant-based products are, well, things are fortified with calcium, essentially. You also need to be taking supplements. So you need to be thinking about iodine supplements. You need to be thinking about B vitamin supplements. There's lots of things that you need to be adding in. But dairy, taking out dairy, dairy's got these nine really important nutrients that just are harder to find elsewhere. So if you are someone who has like a, a family history of osteoporosis, for example, you might want to think about taking some extra supplements, getting a bone scan regularly, regularly just to make sure you're not doing yourself any harm there. But fortified foods are important and supplements are important. And making sure you're eating lots of plants that do contain calcium is really important. Uh, changing gears a little bit. Uh, why are some people saying seed oils are evil? Um, I don't know. I think they've just made up. <laughs> so there's uh, some interesting rhetoric. I've not done any reading about this. So this is my intake. My, this is my take on it. Um, there's some interesting rhetoric around how seed oils can have an impact, like a pro-inflammatory impact on our body. And 
as far as I know, there's no convincing data. And my my amazing friends who are incredible researchers in lipids and stuff like that, they say it's all nonsense. So whatever they say, I go, okay, they know they know way more about this than I do and they're right. So there's no data to suggest that seed oils are having this kind of impact that people are worried about um, as far as we know to date. And none of it's very convincing. What we do know is if we heat certain oils, they can have a more pro-inflammatory effect in the body. And that's why we think about things like um, being careful with fried food, for example, because we know that can be less positive for us. We also think about like manufactured oils as just not being so good for us. So things like uh, trans fats, they're called. So when fats are changed in structure from their natural form, which might be liquid at room temperature to being solid at room temperature, they can make like a margarine. That kind of stuff isn't very good for us. Our body can't recognize it as being a natural thing. So it becomes less positive for us. So there are certainly things in that world that are true, but I think that the seed oils hype is is not accurate to date. Nice. I'm just going back to the milk thing. Uh, full fat, semi-skimmed, skimmed milk, do you know what? From a obesity perspective, there isn't what we see from the data is that people who consume whole milk generally have a lower body weight than people who consume skimmed milk, which is really interesting. There's lots of reasons that that could be, including that people who drink skimmed milk are the people who drink it because they struggle with their body weight, right, in the first place. So we don't know for sure. But actually, it seems to be that the minerals in dairy bind some of the fat and stop it from being absorbed as effectively. So we maybe don't access all of the fat from dairy, which may also account for like the French paradox stuff where they eat a lot of cheese but actually they don't necessarily have higher level they have better cholesterol levels than we do as a population so there's some interesting stuff in there but in general we do recommend that people think about having lower fat dairy products but i don't mean by that to have like fat free yogurt that's got loads of sweeteners and other things and flavorings and stuff like that in it i mean to try and keep things as natural as possible um We've touched on the topic of calories quite a lot, but we haven't really, you know, what's your, what's your view on calories? <laughs> Very broad question. <laughs> I mean, I think they've become this really like hyper fixated thing. And actually there's just a unit of, of measure, right? It's just a unit of energy. It's just a physics thing. So calories in, calories out, we talk about a bit. It's just a unit of energy, how much energy you're burning, how much energy you're taking in. I think that they've become this like thing that we hyper fixate on. And it's worth people remembering that labels for food are allowed to be up to 20% incorrect. So when you're using any kind of tracking app, actually it's going to be at least 20% either side. So where people are going, oh, I've got 10 calories left, I'm going to have one more peanut. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> that's complete nonsense, right? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. But some people are numbers people, right? And that's yeah. where they can get fixated on things and it makes things worse for them ultimately mental health-wise and everything else. We know like the almond story, you just can't, or the nut story, you just can't absorb all of the fat from nuts. So what it says on the label is not going to be what you absorb from it. When we cook celery, it's got more calories and we don't cook it. All these things like have an impact on stuff because of how we can access the calories. And like, Ultimately, if we could all go away from the calories and start thinking about, are we physically hungry? That would be the best way to think about things. So if you're physically hungry, you should eat to your satiety and then you should stop eating until you feel physically hungry again, right? But most of us are making food decisions based on the fact that we're bored or we're lonely or we're tired or we're having like an emotional reaction to something. So we want to eat or in a restaurant and it's delicious or we eat way beyond our fullness, all that kind of stuff. So the way that we work in clinic with these kinds of things is teaching people to listen to their hunger cues, listen to their body, trust their hunger hormones a little bit more, which is difficult work and it takes a long time. But counting calories is counterintuitive to you learning to trust your body and having it in a healthy relationship with food for the rest of your life. So we never recommend calorie counting to anybody because it can have this really undermining impact on your ability to listen to your hunger hormones and listen to your fullness hormones and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So let's say someone does want to lose weight. Mm. 
My, and this is this could be totally wrong, but I was under the impression that oh, if I'm feeling hungry, it means it's working. Sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, but I mean, feeling hungry is not a good thing, is it? Because when you're hungry, you're also really stressed and anxious. It's like a cortisol. Yeah, reaction. I find myself watching a lot of food videos. Yeah, <laughs> sure. When I'm feeling hungry at night time, thinking yeah. it's got to be done to get that yeah. visceral adipose tissue down. Yeah, no, you don't yeah. have to do that. You don't no. have to live like that. <laughs> you don't have to live that way. Um, you know, when you're hungry, you're, you're potentially tapping into your body's fat stores. But also when you're managing your diet properly and your appetite's regulated properly, you'll also be tapping into your body's fat stores. And you can do that in many different ways. There's no need for you to be physically hungry. Going to sleep hungry means you sleep much less well. You feel hungry all night. Your body's keeping you awake because it's saying we need to eat something. So actually it's about trying to manage your appetite better through the day so that you're not feeling hungry at any point. Because when we're hungry, hungry and when we're tired and when we're stressed, we're much more likely to eat things that we don't necessarily feel that are in line with our, our health goals at that time. So for example, when you're stressed or when you're tired, your brain releases much more dopamine in response to eating certain foods than it would if you're not stressed and you're not tired. And there's great studies from Kings that show that people who are tired, so sleep deprived, so we sleep deprived them in the lab and then we offer them food freely. When you're sleep deprived, you eat on average 400 to 500 calories a day more than when you're not sleep deprived. Tiredness lights, when you eat something, particularly something that's high in fat and carbohydrates, when you're tired, the dopamine receptors in your brain are lit up so much more because your body's saying, yes, more energy. We need more energy to stay awake. Same with when you're stressed because it's fight or flight. Your body's saying, yes, more energy. We need to run or fight. So managing stress, managing tiredness, all these kinds of things, those are the things to get out your way. And if your diet regime is making you hungry, so you're really tired, hunger, it also goes through all the anger and cortisol pathways in our brain. So you're more stressed, you're more tired, you're more likely to want to overeat and not regulate your appetite at all. And that's got loads of detrimental impacts on you. To what extent is mindful eating helpful? Yeah, super helpful, super helpful. So if you think about um, sitting down with a small amount of food and consuming it mindfully, listening to your body, checking in. So the way that I might work this in practice would be, I would say you can have as much of this, you're going to make yourself a meal, you can have as much of it as you want to have. But first of all, I'd like you to take away kind of, a, you know, a smallish portion of it, take it to the sofa, eat it properly, engage with it, try not to have lots of distractions around you, chew it properly, take your time over it. And once you've finished it, have a little check in. Am I feeling full? Do I want more? What, what do I feel like right now? If you still feel hungry, great, have some more. But if you don't, let's just pause there, go and do something else, distract yourself from the food. You don't need any more food. So it's about kind of tuning in, listening, chewing properly. All those things are really important as part of that sweet bit random but i find that when i eat certain things my belly bloats a little bit it's not to the point of uncomfortableness but it's just sometimes i wake up in the morning and i and i, I look down and i'm like oh you know you know fairly flat belly and other times i wake up in the morning like this morning and i'm like damn how do I get so fat overnight? <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah, what's, sure. what's going on there? So uh, different foods ferment at different rates and produce different type amounts of gas in our colon. And when your colon, because it is a meter and a half long, it's a big organ, when it's full of gas, you look bigger. Then you might go for a poo and pass some gas and you're kind of back to normal, right? Mm. One of the things that we see from this kind of Instagram culture stuff is that people think that these people are maintaining this very flat first thing in the morning belly all day long when actually everything that you eat especially if you're a very slim person everything you eat is almost visible in your tummy so you'll be aware of it and you can see it if you carry a very low body fat percentage so all of the models that are doing the posing are doing it first thing in the morning and they're probably dehydrated and starved because that's when they look most ripped as it were um and actually everything you eat has an impact and you can see it so yeah it's normal normal to have a bit of bloating and you know if you have a bit of bloating after eating beans and lentils and pulses and like garlic and onion and that kind of stuff, that's completely normal because your gut bacteria love it and they're fermenting it.
There's nothing I can be, I can be like, oh, I look more bloated today and I had avocado yesterday, therefore avocado is bad for me. Is, is yeah. there any kind of bro science there that works? You, you can think about that. So things that are most likely to, um, to, to ferment in your gut are these, what we call fermentable carbohydrates. And the biggest culprits that we see in clinical practice are onion and garlic, pulses, apples and pears, and some of these kind of quite commonly consumed foods. So if it's something that bothers you, or if it's certainly if it's causing you any pain, if it's something that's bothering you mentally or physically, it's worth going to see a dietitian because we can tell you exactly what it is that's causing it. And you can choose to avoid it on the days that you don't want to feel bloated, but then you can go after dinner and eat whatever you like and be okay. Nice. Um, to what extent is glucose monitoring for glucose spikes useful? Great question. I mean, this is kind of outside of my area of expertise, if I'm honest. My experience of people monitoring their blood glucose is that they get very worried about things that are completely physiologically normal, because actually our blood sugars are supposed to fluctuate during the day. They're supposed to go up and down. Your body has very good mechanisms of controlling your blood glucose. And if you're worried about an increase in your blood glucose that maintains it within the normal range, you're worrying about something that you should just be really happy that your body's doing that. You don't need to worry about the fact that that's happening. So I think it can it, it attracts people who are hyperfixating on their health anyway, and it creates additional anxiety about everything they put in their mouth. So ultimately, I think it's really unhelpful, particularly in the long term. It might be interesting as a snapshot for a very short term under supervision with support, but I just don't think it's something we need to be encouraging people to do at all. So if, for example, I eat, I eat an avocado and it causes a, me more of a glucose spike than it does my mate. D does that tell me anything about like my the the, the way my body is I don't know, absorbing avocado is different and therefore I should avoid them or anything? It like doesn't that? mean you should avoid them. No, it just means that you might want to think about combining them with other things that has less of an impact. I mean, avocado just so you know isn't going to spike anyone's blood sugar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's just something. So banana is a better example, right? So yeah. if you you and your friend both eat a banana and it spikes yours more, yeah. are we talking about spiking you outside the normal range? In which case, it's worth having a chat with somebody about that. Or are we just talking about it increasing it slightly? In which case, it's fine. Mm. Also, really worth remembering that. A banana is not a standard food, same as an avocado. Like they all are a different size and shape. If you eat a banana when it's more ripe, it's got more available sugar than when it's less ripe. And as long as your blood sugars are staying, rising and falling within the normal range of what we know to be healthy, you've literally got nothing to worry about. Nice. Do you uh, do any research or stuff around things like the longevity side, like, you know, take people taking metformin or statins and stuff, even though they are like in their 20s? Yeah, I mean, there is some stuff around that. So when we developed the Smart Supplement, which is the multivitamin product for heights, we had to unfortunately get a bit involved in that world. And it is like an interesting world. I think, you know, I know from my medical colleagues that some cardiologists just start taking statins to protect themselves from a very young age, even though they haven't got high cholesterol. But there's also real statin deniers in the low carb community who are absolute charlatans and are causing all kinds of harm as well. Um, so it's, it's a real mixed picture, but I think uh, metformin is slightly you know, can have an impact on your liver and have some more complicated side effects for some people some of the time. So, you know, I just don't think people need to be taking any prescription medications unless they're clinically indicated, obviously. But there is interesting discussions around that world and protecting yourself from high blood, like insulin resistance essentially is what metformin is protecting you from, may have some benefits, but the side effects probably outweigh it. We don't have data on healthy people taking it and the potential side effects on that and what's better and what's worse. So I would avoid it. Cool. Um... I have a friend who wanted to lose a load of weight before his wedding day. And so he took injections of semaglutide or liraglutide yeah, yeah, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And he said it was magical because it made it suppressed his appetite massively, made him feel nauseous every time he ate. So he stopped eating basically. Yeah. And he lost a load of weight before his wedding day. Yeah. Um, what What's going on there? Is, yeah. it, is this some magical weight loss drug that... 
is not particularly i mean you described it beautifully it (laughs) makes you feel terrible the whole time you're taking it and really nauseous and so you don't eat which then means you can't concentrate on anything you have headaches you feel awful people passing out all kinds of stuff uh so like if you want that (laughs) fine but you don't have to go down that route right there's so many better healthier ways of doing it and it's you, what you'll probably notice is your friend puts on all that weight again because as soon as you stop feeling nauseous you're like oh my god food's my friend again yeah. and you haven't learned anything about actually looking after your body which is what you know behavior change is all about love it um just a couple more questions on that and then i'd love to talk about the probiotic and like the ways you guys made it and all that kind of stuff um we kind of touched a little bit on kind of brain function and mood and concentration and things i wonder if you could just sort of you know, if, if someone was, was being like, hey, Sophie, how do I how do I change my diet such that it improves my brain function or makes me ha- improves my mood? What are like the top recommendations here? Yeah, great question. So um, omega-3s are super, super important for our brain structure, as we've talked about, and they can also help to protect us from excess inflammation in the brain, which is linked to anxiety and depression and stuff like that. So either make sure you're having at least two portions of oily fish a week or take your omega-3 supplements. B vitamins are incredibly important for our brain health. They they produce, they make things like serotonin, melatonin, all of our, they make dopamine, GABA, all of these really important brain chemicals that we really need all the time. So B vitamins are really essential for brain function. And we've got some really interesting work showing that you can use B vitamins in controlled circumstances in replacement of SSRIs, so anxiety and depression treatments. And they work in a very similar way in the right doses at the right moment for the right people. So B vitamins, super, super important for general brain function and brain health. And then we also think about things like antioxidants and particularly the anthocyanins from blueberries are amazing for our brain health. So not just blueberries, but anthocyanins come in like red cabbage, other dark purple vegetables. And there's some amazing data showing that if children are given a blueberry smoothie before an exam, they perform better in that exam than the children who haven't had a blueberry smoothie. And then when we swap them over and the level of the exam stays the same and the first children are given the blueberry smoothie, not given the blueberry smoothie, second children are, the children who had the blueberry smoothie always perform better than the children who didn't have the blueberry smoothie. So what we think is happening there is it's getting better blood to your brain and that is meaning that you can have a better mental performance in a very like short like period of time. So it's having that direct impact on your brain health in that moment. And so with the smart probiotic, smart supplement, we've got B vitamins, we've got other things like iodine that are missing from people's diets that have a big impact, but we've also got vitamin D, which you really need for your brain health as well. I should have mentioned that, but we've got omegas, B vitamins, and anthocyanins as kind of the core components with the other essential things around it. And I mean... I designed this, right? And then you you do all the research and you put something together and you think, do you know what? I think that's going to work really well given the research that we've got. But you always, always have this kind of slight scepticism. And then when the reviews started coming in for it, I was like, oh my God, it's really working for people. And it really works for me as well. I think with my ADHD and stuff, those nutrients are so important to me. And it really helps in terms of brain function for lots of people. And the reviews really kind of speak for themselves on that. Can we uh, zoom into vitamin D? What's going on with vitamin hmm, D? Sure. Everyone, just so everyone knows, everyone should be taking vitamin D in the winter months in the Western Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere, sorry, because we just don't get enough sunlight. So the darker your skin, the less able you are to synthesize enough vitamin D from the sunlight. So the way that those studies are conducted are that people of all different skin colors are put in the Spanish sunshine in the summer for an hour at lunchtime, and they see who how much vitamin D is increased, and they can see that the darker your skin, the longer you need to be in the sun to synthesize the same amount of vitamin D, and the lighter your skin, the less amount of time you need to be in the sun 
to synthesize vitamin D. I'm a ginger. I synthesize more vitamin D than anyone else in the world. Uh, superpowers. So vitamin D is really, really important for loads of different things. We think of it more as being like a hormone now rather than a vitamin. So we see it within that capacity and it, it helps to protect us from cancer. It helps to protect us from, you know, it's really important for our immune function. It's really important for our brain health. Vitamin D is a really, really essential nutrient for all of us. And it speaks to how our society has changed now that we work indoors and we stay indoors all day that you know such a huge percentage of the population are vitamin d deficient especially at this time of year so vitamin d supplements are super super important i take them all year round i think everyone else should too but it's the government recommendations are that everyone takes them between october and april mm. what other supplements do you take I take heights, basically. That's all. Nice. <laughs> Easy. Ticks, ticks the box. <laughs> um, okay. Let's talk about how you develop these. But before we go there, uh, why do why is the word supplement often associated with the word scam? Yeah. I mean, because so much of it is. The industry is honestly the wild west. And so I started working with guys from heights, I think probably about five years ago when I was still working at King's. And I hadn't really realized what a mess the industry was as a whole. So it's a really complicated thing and a difficult thing to make a really good quality supplement product. So most people just don't bother. And worryingly, anyone could go to a supplement manufacturer, anyone with no qualifications at all, and say, I want to put this much of this thing in a capsule. And they can make that and sell it. And no one's necessarily checking that and making sure that it's safe, it's the right quantities, it's suitable for everybody. It's like anyone can do it. And that's why we see all these influencers and stuff like that, flogging supplements and, and all this sort of stuff, because they can just make their own any day that they want to. It's it's a really it's a real minefield. All of the ones that are on the shelves in shops and stuff like that, the quality of them is incredibly variable, even the more expensive ones. There's some really, like really eye-wateringly expensive supplements now that I look at the formulation, I think why have you put those things together? They don't work together. They're counteracting each other. They're all trying to do different things and fighting against each other. And that's because they've not had a dietitian or a nutritionist there, qualified nutritionist there formulating for them and trying to help them to make the right decisions about what's going to work and what's not going to work. We also have a problem with the supplement industry where something is trying to be right for everybody. So it's like, this is like a supplement for men. And I'm like, well, what about, is it for a man who does a lot of exercise or doesn't do any exercise? For a man who has a sedentary job or an active job? Is it for a man who is in his 70s or in his 30s? All different people, right? Need different things. So it's kind of about tailoring these sorts of things to specifically what you're looking for. But it is a minefield. And there's also big population level data to suggest that people who take supplements don't necessarily have better longevity or live longer or anything like that than people who don't. Like it's, we're talking about kind of A to Z multivitamin. But I think that's largely because lots of people, histo I mean, the quality of them has been terrible historically, but also people take them as like a, they just think, that, well, if I take this, I don't have to eat fruits and vegetables, I don't have to do anything else. So I'm ticking the box. And actually that's just not how it really works. Mm, nice. So Let's say I, as an influencer, decided to shill my own supplement. Yeah. How does how does one go about making a supplement? So you would go to a supplement manufacturer and you would say, can you, I want to put some stuff in a capsule and sell it to people. And they would go, okay, what do you want to put in? And you might say, well, I think maybe a bit of this and a bit of that. And they would say, all right, well, why don't you also put this in and this in? Because they've got some of that on the shelves. And they go, well, about this a bit of this and a bit of that. And then they put a load of like horrible stuff in there, anti-caking agents and all kinds of other things you don't really want to be putting in your body. Um, and then your pill's made and off you go. Oh. And so if I were to be like, let's let's add a stamp of kind of credibility on this, let's mm -hmm. consult a qualified dietitian and, and nutritionist. Mm -hmm. Or if I came to you and was like, hey, Sophie, can you help me make a supplement? Yeah. 
would you just be like, all right, this is the list of ingredients you want to give to the manufacturer? So we would go, okay, who's it for? What's the target group? What are we looking for? What effect are we trying to have for people? What are we? What's the outcome that we want people to say or feel? What are we trying to aim for? Who are we trying to sell it to? Who's your target market? What are they doing? What's their lifestyle like? What foods are they likely to be eating or not eating? Like what does their diet look like roughly on average so that we can see what people are eating enough of and what they're not eating enough of. So they might need a little bit more of this and a bit less of this. And then we would say, okay, these are the things that we think are really important. And then we go, all right, we can't fit all of that in. So let's adjust it. Well, we first of all look at all the research. We'd look at the papers in terms of how much of a B vitamin makes an impact on this, for example. Then we go, okay, well, what can we fit in a capsule? Do you want it to be two capsules or one capsule? What size capsule is right for your market? Is it people that are going to complain about it being too big, in which case we need to go down? And then are we going to have three a day or two a day? What's right for you, right? All this stuff to think about, how much can we fit in? What's going to go in there? What's the price point? I would you want to sell it at? Because some of the ingredients that I like to use are really expensive because they work really well. So it's kind of all of these puzzle pieces that we put in. And so that whole bit of conversation is clearly a lot longer than you going to manufacture and just saying, can you put this in a capsule, please? Right? So there's a lot more to think about if you're making things properly and thoughtfully and trying to have an impact like we've done with Heights. So it is a much more complicated process, takes a lot of time. But then I come up with a formula, which then goes to the manufacturer for pricing and kind of whether they can fit it in a capsule. Some things take up more space than other things. So you're moving things around a little bit, but that's basically the process of getting it to manufacture with a nutrition professional. Hmm, nice. And so you've been helping to, well, you formulate heights, heights and also the smart probiotic. Yeah. How did, how did that process work? So probiotics, it turns out, are really difficult to make. So <laughs> arguably more complicated than the smart supplement, even though the smart supplement looks super complicated. So probiotics are fussy. So you have to be really careful with the environment that they're produced in. You have to use, it's much better to use what we call proprietary strains. So there'll be a few, there's a few really good probiotic manufacturers across Europe. I'm talking about literally maybe five. And they have their own proprietary strains that all have research on them. So they'll have done specific research on their specific strains, which is important because all the different bacteria are genetically slightly different. So you might grow one in here and it's a bit genetically different to this one, but it might have the same name. So you want to get it from the people who've done the actual research on it. So that happens. Then you have to say, well, can we put these five different strains from your strain bank in combination? And they might say, well, no, because that one fights with that one and they don't get on and then they end up killing each other off. And then you say, okay, well, this is how long we want to get. So the sooner you get probiotic to people, the better, because if it sits on shelves every day that it's on a shelf, it's losing probiotic count, right? So some of the ones that you pick up from the back of a shelf at a, pro at a health food store that have been sat there for two years, there's not going to be anything left in there realistically. Then you have to think about the capsule. So we want to make sure it's getting to your colon and not being released in the stomach or in the small bowel because if it gets released in the stomach too much, then the acid kills off the probiotic bacteria. So you've got to try and make sure it gets to the place where it survives and does its job. So it's like a really complicated process. And also things like, so with vitamins now, I'm like familiar with that and I'll say, okay, I want this much B vitamin. And then I want that much of a probiotic, but they're like, oh, it's really fluffy and it takes up loads of space. And I'm like, but I don't understand why. And there's no, that's not for me. If you can explain to me why I can't have something, I can work around it. But it was like with that formula, it's like, here's what we want. And they come back and say, can't do that. And I'm like, but why? And they can't really properly explain why, because it's just like a manufacturing thing. Like it's like a, that one's too fluffy or it doesn't work with this one or whatever it is. And I'm, it was complicated. It took us two years to make that, but I'm super proud of it. And the results have been amazing. And we're just, as I say, just doing the human trials with it now and listening to everyone's feedback. And it's been really positive. So what's in this? This is like a capsule with like powder and Yes, there's seven strains of probiotic bacteria in there. Okay. Yeah. So just like a load of bacteria. Yeah. So like loads and loads of bacteria. And bacteria looks like powder? 
Really? Yeah, yeah. So it's freeze-dried. Oh. Uh, I think it's freeze-dried. I don't oh. know how they make it work, to be honest. Yeah. So it's basically loads and loads of probiotic bacteria that are dried, and then they are all coated, so micro-encapsulated, and that means that they can survive in your GI tract as carefully as possible. So the capsule is the... Capsule keeps them alive, but they are also, the powder itself is also micro-encapsulated to help survivability even further. Oh, that's fancy. Mm. And so what's the benefit of taking one of these? So there's amazing data on probiotics in terms of, so that one in particular, the strains we focused on are gut-brain axis stuff. So making sure that your gut and your brain are communicating effectively, not over-communicating, but also these studies that we talked about, about anxiety and depression and cortisol levels, reducing cortisol levels, managing those kinds of things. We've also got some amazing strains for general gut health in there. So you mentioned that you noticed your poo consistency had changed and was more consistent when you were taking it. And that's feed, like feedback that we've had from lots, lots of our early customers is that if they had slightly too loose stools before, it was firmer. And if their stools were too hard before, it's more loose. So it's a better consistency for them. So consistency of stool is there. There's lots of stuff around general gut health, but also immunity and inflammation. So we think that inflammation is really, really key to lots of these conditions that we've talked about today. So we've kind of focused really specifically on the strains that we know to have the effects that they want them to have, which is borne out in kind of all of everything that we do for heights. What you find with other probiotic products, most of them were designed for animals and they've just randomly come across a formula that they can see has some benefits in humans. But, you know, probiotic research has moved on and we can be really specific and targeted about what we're looking for now. And I can see a world in the future where someone goes, all right, here's my probiotic for immunity. Here's my probiotic for my gut brain axis. Here's my probiotic for this. And they have a sort of piecing together of the different probiotic strains that they want to use rather than this kind of, here's your gut health supplement type picture. Would it be true that in an, in an absolutely ideal world, if someone was getting all of their, like having a super healthy diet and stuff, they wouldn't need to take any supplements or probiotics? Or is there like additional alpha to be had by actually taking one of these? Yeah, well, so... What we know to be true is that if you are able to eat perfectly every single day, all the things we've talked about already, making sure your diet's perfectly balanced all of the time, drinking plenty of water, you're not drinking alcohol, you're not drinking too much tea and coffee, caffeine depletes this, blah, blah, blah. You're not stressed, your life is ideal and you're super zen. Uh, then probably you don't need a, a supplement, right? But the reality is most of us are rushing around, we're eating meal to meal, we're not thinking too much about it, we don't want to think too much about it. We are eating croissants for breakfast instead of the things that we know to be better for us. All this kind of stuff is happening and we're stressed, which depletes our nutrients, and we are living in a polluted environment, which means we're using up more antioxidants, and our food is depleted in nutrients, and we are, and, 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 we're having too much coffee, alcohol, these things that deplete everything. And so in reality, modern living means that nutritional supplements, vitamin supplements can be really beneficial for lots of people. With probiotics, we evolved and our microbiome evolved in an environment where we lived much more closely with the earth, where we were growing our own vegetables and picking things from the ground and living much more closely with animals, you know, pigs, sheep, that kind of stuff. And we were, our microbiome was much, much more diverse. We ate seasonally. So we ate different things naturally. We ate a lot more fermented foods because it was a good way of preserving things. We had a very different diet and lifestyle to what we've evolved to now, which is like a Western type lifestyle where our microbiome population is really, really different to what it was maybe even 50 years ago, certainly a hundred years ago. And if we can compare a Western microbiome to someone who lives in rural Africa or rural China, we can see ours is just so inferior in so many ways. And, you know, people within that field would say, that's why we're suffering with diabetes, cardiovascular disease, depression, anxiety, because our microbiome is so affected. And if we add into that, the way that we eat now, 
but also the fact that many of us will have had lots of antibiotics growing up, which just kill off your microbiome. We also um, do all sorts of things. It has an impact when more stressed, all that kind of stuff. We we disinfect everything. We've spent however many years doing this hand gel stuff now. All of these things, we're careful with disinfectant, everything else. All these things impact our microbiome, preservatives in food, emulsifiers in food, all that stuff. And now we're in a situation where actually our microbiomes are kind of just not doing as good a job as they could do. So introducing more probiotic strains, especially some of these kind of less commonly found uh, microbial strains, bacterial strains, can obviously reseed our microbiome with lots of these beneficial things that we need and these impacts that they're having on us. So, you know, ideally we all eat beautifully and perfectly all the time and we go out into nature all the time, we're hugging trees and we're kissing trees and touching the ground and all that kind of stuff and introducing bacteria. But in reality, that's not the world we live in. So I think we have to take a pragmatic look at that and, and think about what our bodies need given the lifestyles that we lead. What's the, what does the business of being a dietitian look like? How do they, if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, you know what, this dietitian thing sounds, sounds interesting. <laughs> would you recommend it as a career? And then oh, I guess, what does the, I guess, building your own business off the back end look like as well? Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic career. You can do, I mean, I've done so many different things within dietetics and you can do so many different things. And in theory, if I got bored of talking about the gut, which I never will, but if I did get bored of that tomorrow, I could go and do some work and become a diabetes dietitian. You know, I'd have to do some, go back to a basic level and train again but you know I could go and learn about and completely do have a pivot you know so there's so many different things available and now is a great time to get into it because you know everyone's talking about it it's everywhere and it's becoming more and more important and more and more well recognized which is amazing as a profession um one of the things that's super important to remember is that you do a three or four year degree or you do a two-year master's then you need to go into the NHS and learn how to do your job, right? So people, young people now say to me, I just want to do what you do. And I'm like, I'm 15 years deep in my career, <laughs> right? I've been doing this for a long time. Did eight years in the NHS, five years in academia. Now I do what I do. And like, you have got to do, like, you've got to do that time because every patient that you see in the NHS, every colleague connection that you make, it's a bit like driving a car. You do, when you pass your driving test, it's after that that you come across all the different things that you need to learn about and what you need to bring to your practice. If you as a newly, newly qualified dietitian start trying to see patients in private practice, you're going to do them a massive disservice because you just don't know enough, right? And people are paying you and they're going to be really disappointed and they're going to go away and they're going to say, sorry, dietitian, but she, did, she just told me to eat more vegetables and drink more water because that's all you know about, right? So you have to do your time. You have to pay your time, pay your dues. They say 10,000 hours, don't they, that makes you an expert in something. And I think that probably stands to reason with dietetics as well. I have no idea how many years that is, but I think you've got to go and learn on the job realistically. In, and, you know, in the UK, we're so lucky to have the NHS as a learning facility. Like you can learn everything you need to know from everything in the NHS. It's incredible. And most countries would just kill to have that opportunity. So as a dietitian, it's really important to go and learn your craft, find out which area you're really interested in, get really passionate about it, because otherwise you're going to end up talking about something you don't care about. And hopefully it really comes across how much I'm interested in care about what I do, because it makes a difference to your everyday life. So it's really important you pay dues in that way. <laughs> then, so as a business, uh, it works. So the way that my business runs, you can do it in lots of different ways, but the way that my business runs is the dietitians that work for me, they mostly all still work in the NHS or work in other areas or work in research, but they, we do a profit split situation. So we have a ratio that they, they take and I take. So we attract all the patients and we do the promotion of everybody and we maintain the website. We have a full admin team, all that kind of stuff. The dietitians come and see their patients and they take a cut of what we take from them. So they take a favorable cut compared to other clinics of what, what we take. And that business, like, 
is, I love it. I'm really passionate about it because I really want to bring really great evidence-based nutrition to people who have medical conditions because otherwise they see people and get completely messed up and go in the wrong direction. But it's not necessarily a hugely profitable business. It's great. I love it. I love seeing patients and I will always do it. But it's not necessarily hugely profitable because you're just working on this profit split situation. So I would say that the dietitians who work for me basically cover the admin and cover the costs. And then I take the profit of the patients that I see essentially, which is fine. Works well for me. Then the consultancy is a much easier way of having consistent revenue. So if a dietitian is listening or someone who's thinking about this is listening, doing having clinic income and just to be clear I only work in clinic two days a week so I'm always physically present and from a CEO perspective always present to run that business but like in terms of clinic hours I do two days a week in clinic then the other three days a week I do consultancy and having consultancy income is super super helpful and important because it's consistent and it means that you know what you're getting whereas particularly when you're building up your clinic business you are going to end up with maybe three patients one week and no patients the next week. And that's just not something you could live on. So it takes time to build that up. And now I'm fully booked until May because of the show, which is amazing, but also just a bit overwhelming. So uh, yeah, so you need a bit of everything and keeping your fingers in pies is really important. And now kind of adding more of the media stuff in is really helpful. So it's about having those multiple income streams, I think. But really importantly, I think it really helps for them all to be on the same thread because I spend a lot of time trying to do some social media stuff. The more social media stuff I do gets people into clinic. So if I was on social media talking about diabetes, but I only see gut health patients, it's not going to work, is it? So I talk about gut health on there, that feeds into there. All my time is kind of, you know, on the TV talking about gut health, that feeds into clinic and it all works in synchrony as opposed to it being kind of all over the place. Mm, The power of having a niche. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we talk about this a lot for like YouTube channels and businesses and stuff. Yeah. yeah. I guess even in this, I mean, it's a a business, right? Like your personal brand is as the gut person. Yeah, I mean, it is now. I never... creates this virtual cycle. Yeah, I never thought it would be, but this is what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Final question. How, how, How did you end up on TV? What was the story there? So I've always done a little, well, since I was at King's, I've done a little bit of TV work here and there, mainly kind of you know, on the one show where they go, let's go and talk to our expert, Sophie, about this particular thing. So we go off and I've done kind of Inside the Factory and uh, How to Lose Weight Well, these kind of magazine-y type diet shows, that sort of thing. So I've done a fair bit of that, done some bit of live TV. And then my lovely friends, Alana and Lisa, who run a company called The Gut Stuff, had been pitching this show to Channel 4, or all to production companies for ages, um, about trying to bring gut health to the general population, get people to understand a bit more about it. And they finally got commissioned by the production company Monkey and Channel 4 took it, which we filmed a pilot. I obviously screen tested, but these are kind of my friends, so we wanted to work together. Screen tested, helped them to kind of develop the format a little bit. And then um, in terms of doing a bit more clinical stuff than perhaps they were thinking about doing before. And then we filmed it. So Channel 4 commissioned it and we filmed it over the summer last year. It's kind of the process. Nice. Yeah, it's been amazing. It's been so yeah, fun. It's like how, doing clinic, but with all my mates. Right. <laughs> and like, do people like recognize you on the street now? Or like, how? Do you know what? I was so worried. This is an embarrassing story. I was so worried about being recognized. And I was saying to my agent, like, wait, the, who I got after I got the show, I was like, I'm so worried about this. I'm like quite a shy person naturally. Like when I'm talking about work, I'm fine. But when I'm on my own, I'm like always with my dog looking like shit. And like, I don't want people to be like, oh, you're that woman who talks about poo on the TV. The only person who's recognized me so far is the pest control man that was outside my house visiting a neighbor. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> so it's fine. That's a good level it's, of fame. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But do you know what's really nice is I, I suspect that people are recognizing me because I've heard a few comments conversations near me about the show and people saying have you seen that show on channel four and stuff like that so maybe people are I guess what I'm doing is not I'm not on love island right so I'm not (laughs) having to 
people aren't no one's fangirling me they're just like oh that's interesting yeah i think that's her which is a nice it's a nice way of doing things for sure um any so for for someone who's listened to the end of this very long conversation i think it's been like two and a half hours (laughs) sorry uh, and they're super into this gut stuff they're like i really want to find out more what Mm -hmm. are some recommended resources that you can point people in the direction of listen um the psychobiotic if you're interested in psychobiotics psychobiotic revolution john cryan is an amazing place to start it's really accessible and so super super interesting um the gut stuff who are part of the tv show they um have amazing resources on their website in terms of gut health and things like that we've got loads of blogs on our website which is citydietitians.co.uk the girls who run our social media channels at city dietitians we've got loads of really interesting information coming up all the time on there they do an amazing job of running that um and obviously i'm on social media at sophie dietitian lots of stuff on there that people can pick up but there's yeah always sharing stuff so people can come along and find out fantastic sophie thank you so much this has been wonderful pleasure thank you All right, so that's it for this week's episode of Deep Dive. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned in the podcast are going to be linked down in the video description or in the show notes, depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then do please leave us a review on the iTunes store. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this in full HD or 4K on YouTube, then you can leave a comment down below and ask any questions or any insights or any thoughts about the episode. That would be awesome. And if you enjoyed this episode, you might like to check out this episode here as well, which links in with some of the stuff that we talked about in the episode. So thanks for watching. Uh, Do hit the subscribe button if you aren't already, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.